Hey, everybody, wanted to come to you real quick before I start today's show to let you know, in case you haven't heard, that in our Lions of Liberty store, we have a brand new coffee mug. It is a taxation is death mug. That's right. People say, libertarians say, taxation is theft. And you know what? It is theft, but you know what it leads to? It leads to death. It leads to war. It leads to the war on drugs. It leads to all kinds of suffering in the streets of this country right here. Taxation is death. It's a new phrase that is going to catch over across this nation. It says that on the one side of the mug. The other side has our awesome Are You Ready to Roar logo. Pick it up in the Lions of Liberty store today, which can be found at lionsofliberty.store, where you can also find all of our merchandise, our t-shirts, sweatshirts, all kinds of different things from Felony Friday, Electric Liberty Land, our Are You Ready to Roar line. We have a bunch of different stuff in the Lions of Liberty store. Please check it out today. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And guys, I got a great show for you this week. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel to New Jersey, was invited out there by Mike Rufo of the New Jersey Libertarian Party in partnership with the uh, local Young Americans for Liberty chapter. They were putting on a great event, a criminal justice forum. It was uh, Mike and myself and Larry Sharp and Maj Touré, as well as the Reverend Charles Boyer. Just a uh, fantastic group and a diverse group, too, obviously, Libertarians evolved. Charles, a progressive who is accomplishing great things in the state of New Jersey, um, having to do with uh, uh, reform around cash bail and solitary confinement. So great conversation. We had an awesome turnout, and it's been a whirlwind week. Uh, I did the best I could editing this on short short notice. It's very long, more than two hours, so I don't want to talk much more. I just want to uh, once again plug Mike Rufo for putting this together. Go ahead and uh, like his page on Facebook. It's Michael Rufo, Libertarian. You can find it at facebook.com slash Rufo. That's R-U-F-O, the number four, Congress. He uh, ran for Congress the uh, last cycle. Great guy. Big thanks to uh, to him for bringing me out and bringing this uh, whole thing together. Would not have happened without his help. So with that being said, guys, I bring you the New Jersey Young Americans for Liberty uh, Criminal Justice Forum, in which took place in Freehold, New Jersey. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming out today. Um, I especially want to thank the speakers. Um, getting you guys together wasn't easy, but the fact that we got it done was, was phenomenal. And the fact that you're here means everything. My name is Michael Rufo, for those of you that don't know me. Uh, I ran for Congress last year in Central Jersey in District 4. I ran against Chris Smith and Josh Welly and three other independent candidates. I came in third, so I beat all the independents. Um, And my claim to fame is I got the Democrat to admit that he believes in states' rights on stage at the League of Women's Voters. 
uh, debate. So that was fun. So for me, that was a little bit of a mini victory. And I had a bunch of people come up to me afterwards and ask, you know, I never really knew what libertarianism is. So, but I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to research it. So, uh, so for me, that was, that was important. Um, part of what we're doing here today, well, what the only thing we're doing here today is the criminal justice reform. So that's what's brought us all together. That's what made me reach out to these people and these people specifically for specific reasons. And I'm going to let them tell you about that. Um, I'm going to introduce them in a minute, but I just want you to know why criminal justice reform is important to me. So, um, I've actually had an uncle who I didn't really know, and he was in jail pretty much his whole adult life and my entire life from day one. And uh, I was drugs related, um, three strike rule in the nineties, all that stuff. And down in Florida and it just, you know, he never really got the help he needed to, to get back on track. And, and everything about the criminal justice system is supposed to be rehab, right? There's supposed to be rehabilitation, and we're supposed to reintroduce people into, in, into the society. And it didn't happen. And he never got that shake. Um, there's a lot of personal story I won't tell about when he did get out eventually, but I, I won't tell that. But it, it just, he ended up back in jail, and he ended up passing while in jail. And we didn't know for months. Nobody knew for months. So no names, none of that's important. What's important is that's one of the reasons why treating everybody as an individual and stop looking at everything as a collective cause is really important to me because every person has their own reason for doing what they do. Every person has their own reason for being who they are. And it's important that we stop painting people with broad strokes of a brush and we focus on the individual and how we can help the individual. And we need to look at that from a governance standpoint we need to look at that from our household standpoint. We need to look at that from every aspect of life. Being a libertarian to me is being an individualist, and being an individualist to me is the truest form of love you can have for all of your neighbors. So I'm going to introduce to you, we have John Odermatt. John is the host of Felony Fridays on the Lions of Liberty Network. You can find that on all your podcast catchers. <laughs> um, John's had 194 interviews. Perfect. I, good memory, right? So 194 interviews with people who have suffered injustices under the criminal justice system. Okay, it's important because he helps get the word out for people to hear their stories so they understand that there is an issue that needs to be addressed. Wealth of knowledge from those interviews, we're going to hear from him today. We've got Larry Sharp. Larry Sharp, everybody. The Libertarian Party candidate for the governor, for the governorship in New York last year? Last year. Right? Phenomenal job. He did a phenomenal job spreading the message, spreading the word, getting the votes. Was actually able to secure the Libertarian Party ballot access throughout all of New York, which has been such a hurdle for everybody. We now have ballot access in 48 of the 50 states, and it's not too difficult to get it in the other two states. So, um, Huge leader in the party, huge leader in the movement, has plenty to say about criminal justice reform. Um, we've got Reverend Charles Boyer. Now, Reverend and I only met today. However, he's very good friends with a friend of mine who is the Central Party, the Central Jersey Chair of the Libertarian Party. Um, Reverend Boyer, he was a key figure in getting the cashless bail laws passed in New Jersey, which is phenomenal because not everybody's got the money, and there needs to be a way to make sure that you know. Not and not everybody's a risk for flight either. So you know, let's think about that. Um, you've got. The marijuana reform that we were working on in New Jersey for legalization was also a key figure in working on that, as well as the independent prosecutor and the ending solitary confinement is something that you're currently working on, correct? No, signed into law not too long ago. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. That's awesome. God bless. And we've got Maj Ture. Maj Ture is the founder of Black Guns Matter, and he is currently running for 
city council at large in Philly. Um, Maj is, is phenomenal. If you haven't found him on Facebook, you don't know who he is, you need to look him up because everything you need to know about being an individual and being somebody who respects and loves every individual, this man is the man right there, okay? Um, with that being said, I just want to ask each of you real quick, if you could, and we'll pass the mic around. Um, all right, so if, if each of you could just quickly and briefly just explain why criminal justice reform is important to you, and then we'll move on to a podcast, which you're all going to be part of, which is going to be John Odermatt moderating a question and answer with all of the speakers. Everyone's going to talk, and eventually we'll turn it over to you guys, and you guys can ask questions as to why it's, you know, whatever is on your mind, whatever question it may be, and we'll all field those accordingly, all right? Thank you very much, guys. John, why don't we start with you and just work our way down? Is that cool, guys? All right, thank you. Thanks to uh, Michael for putting this together tonight. I came in all the way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania uh, to be here with you tonight. So uh, this is a topic that I'm really passionate about. And I mean, you can probably see that by recording 194 podcast episodes. A lot of work goes into that. And just I'll tell you, I, I, can, I could tell a long story. I could talk for a half hour about why I'm so passionate. Um, but I'll try to, try to be brief here and condense to be respectful for the other participants' time up here tonight because, I mean, look, look who I'm competing with for time. I mean, these guys, these guys are some heavy hitters. You're all good looking. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and uh, so Felony Friday I started uh, almost four years ago. And really it goes back to uh, the change that happened in my mind with criminal justice reform started way back in 2007, 2008. I was working out in California in a, uh, an area called the In- Inland Empire, which it's a very industrial area. It's about an hour east of LA. Um, a lot of uh, blue collar workers, things like that. I was working in, uh, in steel framing manufacturing as a management trainee. And I was a young guy out of college, so as soon as I got out there, the first thing they had me do was uh, help with hiring uh, new, uh, new production workers to work on the production floor. And, you know, coming out of college, I thought uh, I didn't ask a lot of questions on what I should be asking, um, if there was a process to follow. They gave me a few qualifications, but they basically just dumped a bunch of uh, job applications, resumes on my desk and said, sort through these and bring the best ones forward to me. That's what my plant manager told me. So I thought I was doing the right thing. I started folding, uh, opening and looking through these applications, and I saw probably three out of every five had the, the felon box checked and uh, had a description there saying you know, exactly what crime was. And back then, I thought I was doing the right thing. I removed all of those from the job pool and kept just the ones uh, that didn't have the box checked, thinking I was doing the right thing. Um, I took them forward to my plant manager, and my plant manager looks for like five seconds, go through, goes through three or four of them, and he goes, where are all the ones with the... Uh, people with a criminal background. I mean, those guys are some of our best workers. You know, they're out there on the floor. He's pointing to people on the floor who, who, uh, who have a criminal background. I'm like, oh, well, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even think of that. That's how uninformed I was. Um, so to come all the way from that, and that was a huge wake-up call for me. I, I, was, I was lucky enough to, I, you know, was on a rotation, so I worked in several different areas in the plant. And I was lucky enough to work as a supervisor on the floor and get to know a lot of these guys and work with them. And it was such a wake-up call coming from my background where I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, which was basically like a, a bubble uh, insulated from uh, uh, the real world, um, to come to understand that people who have either made mistakes or just 
got caught up in something at the, at the wrong time. Um, they are no different. Um, people who have spent time in prison, who have been through the horrible conditions in prison, suffered horrible injustices, they have the same hopes and dreams um, for their families and uh, for their futures. So uh, I, could, I could go on and, and talk about more, but that was really the, the catalyst uh, that ignited my passion for criminal justice reform. And uh, from there, it's, uh, the rest is history starting Felony Friday. So I'll pass on to, to Larry next. And what makes me passionate about this is without question the war on drugs. The war on drugs is the number one issue for me when it comes to criminal justice reform because that, in my eyes, is really the catalyst that made things horrible. And I think that's what you see with the opioid crisis, you see it with the prison industrial complex, you see it when it comes to uh, civil asset forfeiture. And on a personal note, my mother was an addict and my mother was a felon. So I had to deal with that issue. And when she got out of prison, how did I get her up and running? How, how did I deal with, with what happened with when she came out? Most people didn't do what your boss did. Most people just said, nope, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. And when she did have a job, she always felt like she was you know, a hostage. She couldn't do anything because if she lost that job, there was another job for her. So it's personal for me in that regard, but it's also, it is one of the biggest reasons why the government decides to crush people. It is one of the biggest reasons why the government decides to have no due process. It's one of the biggest reasons why you wind up having institutional areas where you wind up taking cops and making them literally have to go against their oath, where you wind up turning cops into thugs. When Here's what I can promise you. Cops aren't sitting in the academy saying, you know what? I cannot wait to give tickets. You know what I can't wait? I cannot wait to beat up defenseless people. I mean, I'm sure some do, but some of, some of everyone does that, but, but I'm just saying, I'm, they're not saying that, but then they wind up doing that, and then we wind up militarizing them, and, and then we go to a level to where now it becomes us versus them. So now we have a system to work where everything is going wrong, and that continues to shift even to our prison system, that then even shifts into our parole system, that, that shifts into every part of law enforcement. The funniest part is, my mother went to prison, and before that, my father, before he passed away, he was a corrections officer. So I've seen it from both sides. I've seen the law enforcement side and how that happened and how my, my father hated his job um, and, and, did, and it was all about pension and he, he passed it before he even got it. And my mother just saw it from the inside. So I saw it from both sides, it's both personal and it's a terrible way of uh, the way the government uses this as an excuse. Remember something, the government very rarely just takes our rights away. Almost always we beg the government to take our rights because we're afraid, almost always. And this is another reason. I'll be good. Thank you. Um, very glad to, glad to be here. Uh, I want to thank my good friend Dan Kraus. We've known each other for some time now. I guess how, how I would answer this, pretty very similar to many, uh, much of the, the key points which have already been stated. Uh, but a major reason uh, I come to this work, one, personal, growing up in New Jersey during a time where uh, young black men were profiled uh, by state troopers. I was pulled over more times than I can count, my face shoved in the concrete more times than I could tell you. So from a very uh, personal standpoint, that's one. But uh, 
most significantly is because of my religious beliefs, my religious background. I come from a black faith church tradition. That faith is founded by abolitionists. I'm an African Methodist Episcopal preacher. Our founder, Richard Allen, was an abolitionist. He was a slave who bought his freedom. The founder of Methodism is John Wesley, who was an abolitionist. And in fact, I come to this work first and foremost, I have no interest in criminal justice reform whatsoever. I only have interest in abolition. I am an abolitionist. If you reform something which is corrupt in and of itself, you're just shuffling the deck. The slaves did not fight for slavery reform. They fought for abolition. That is the construct that I come to this work. Very much in the same way the drug war uh, has been disproportionately targeted against a group of people. It has been a war on black and brown people. The data, without a doubt, bears that out. I fight every day to abolish the drug war. Yes. Every day. And to abolish the criminalization of people. Much of, thank you, much of what we have seen, uh, and I, I really, I soak in every word that's being said here today, has been uh, a criminalization of a people rather than understanding of individuals who are dealing with specific problems. And as a faith leader, as a human being, uh, we're a much better society if we look at people and try to deal with their health issues, addiction issues, rather than exacerbate those issues, devastate their families for generations through extremely punitive measures, retributive measures, rather than healing and compassion. And that's what brings me to this work. Um, first, thanks, you know, for everybody coming out. Um, that's, that's really cool, y'all. Um, me, same, same as I think everyone pretty much has a personal, whether, you know, you're aware of it. You know, just like John was saying, okay, in the beginning I was not aware that I was doing something that I thought was, and then you, it becomes personal because you start to see that click, you know, and Larry saying, you know, I saw it from this side with my mom, I saw it from this side with my dad. From a faith-based perspective, it's, you know, the flock, the sheep, the, the people. You say, oh, you're being criminalized. I think that everybody in here has a, um, a personal interaction with um, the lack of, you know, reform around justice. You know, it's no different than, you know, excellent point that you said is, like, I'm not here to, you know, like, reform slavery, you know. Um, and I think that no different than social justice, criminal justice, justice is justice. Um, so from that perspective, kind of like where is uh, the personal perspective that I have is um, I allegedly may or may not have sold a, a gang of weed and other things. No. no. <laughs> allegedly. At certain points, um, you know, and a lot of my friends, you know, uh, some guys are, you know, fighting indictments right now. You know, some, I mean, I, I, friends that's doing like football numbers for weed. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, okay, y'all are, are really scheduling this right next to heroin? Like, stop. That's clearly not true. Um, so really, um, I think we all have personal experiences in regards to 
the things that we're even calling criminal from the beginning. You know what I mean? And uh, then once it becomes unlawful, you know, then it becomes, you know, uh, we, you know, kind of like don't make that distinction between unlawful or illegal. And so we kind of get caught up in that. But um, if you keep, you know, Larry had an excellent point one time, I think in our Brooklyn class, you know, at the end of every law, you know, there's a person with a gun to tell you, like, comply or don't, or we're going to shoot you pretty much. You know what I'm saying? And so um, as we keep making, making more and more of these things, choices, individual choices, more and more unlawful to the point where someone does something illegal, somebody's personal property, their body gets violated. Um, I think our job is to make sure that we have that pushback. So that's really the thing. Basically, a lot of my friends is, is, is not because of somebody just deciding to say this is now unlawful. You know, so and um, these, the, personal, the personal scenario is these are my friends. Like, I still live in my same hood, you know. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that um, we can share some different perspectives. Already has been jewels dropped tremendously. That line about, like, I'm not here to reform slavery. That's dope. I'm like, that should be on a T-shirt. <laughs> you know, but um, again, thank you all. Right. <laughs> Your hoodie. <laughs> you know, thank you all for, uh, for having us. And, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm here to um, be a public servant. So that's some pretty good stuff, right? Um, it, it warms my heart to hear these guys say the things that they're saying just because it, I, I, for me, it really is all about the individual. It, it's about making sure that everybody can live their life. And, and the criminalization of people, really, it really is the core of all of it. The word criminal, I need you to think about what that really means. What does it mean to be a criminal? Well, I got news for you. In the state's eyes as it sits, if you speed and you plead guilty to speeding you're a criminal but that's that's how loosely the term is used nowadays and these aren't actually crimes they're not things that you should be labeled as a criminal for okay these are these are mistakes you may have made and everybody makes mistakes because we're all human we all have our children in our homes and we don't berate them every time they do the smallest of little things we, we don't we don't need the constant what's the term um i, I just learned the term too no, it's okay. It, we, we, we don't, we don't, we don't. Exactly. We don't, we don't need that. And we, and we don't need the, the, we don't need order maintenance is what we don't need. We don't need order maintenance laws as far as I'm concerned, because we don't need to tell people how to be respectful to one another. That's what our parents did. And our parents taught us that job. So with that, um, I'm, I'm going to hand it over and I'm going to hand the reins over to John at this point. John's going to Host all the Q&A. He's going to ask a bevy of questions. He's going to do what he does best because of all of us. He is the expert in podcasting. So he's going to interview everybody on this stage. John? <clears throat> That's a lot of pressure right there. Thanks a lot. But uh, yeah, so on our show, Lions of Liberty, we have something we, we call libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. And there's no liquor here, so this will be libertarians and maybe pro progressives and conservatives. And I don't know. I mean, the great thing about criminal justice reform, the bar is open. So if anybody wants a beer, you can, you can help yourself. But uh, the great thing about criminal justice reform, and I wish it was like this across the board with you know, everything we're fighting for in different areas, different policies, but I think it's the one policy right now where this country is unified. Um, I mean, you have people left, right, center, moderate, progressive, conservative, libertarian. Everybody knows this system is messed up. And the solutions might not all be the same, but the opportunity right now 
I, I don't think we've, we've seen an opportunity like this before. So I want to start out with, since you know, all of you are you know, talking to people, um, some of you are running for office currently right now, some previously ran for office, uh, fighting for and, and accomplishing different, uh, different causes, getting, getting legislation passed. So you're talking to people out there on the street. So like me personally, when I'm uh, trying to influence someone, persuade someone about criminal, criminal justice reform, I come at it from an emotional aspect. I'll, I'll tell a story, uh, share a story of someone I, I interviewed, something like that. I'm curious what, what you guys go to. Um, you know, maybe give an example. If you're talking to somebody who's on the left, how would you talk to them? If you're talking to somebody who's on the right, would you talk to them differently? Um, sort of just a, a, an open-ended question there. If we want to, since the mic's down there next to Maj, we want to start down there. All right. Yeah, for me, in, in those spaces, so it's a balance. It, I mean, everything's individually tailored, you know, because somebody's perspective, again, is an individual. Um, someone's perspective that has been affected by the drug war, somebody's, uh, uh, we'll find the commonalities, but the, the, uh, someone that's affected by the drug war and someone that's affected by, um, I don't know, they got a bump stock now, you know, they see the frivolousness in it. But you got to find out exactly where that person's um, unjust thing that has been thrust upon them is. So in that area, it's, it's kind of individual. But after you start to get to talking, like you said, it's right, left, center, it doesn't matter. Everybody goes, nah, that's, that's not right. Even, even if something as simple as um, like uh, parking tickets. Mm -hmm. Like, yo, so simply, like, bro, do you think that, like, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be cool if it was like first come, first serve? Would you be cool with first come, first serve parking? Or you can go pay in this parking lot instead of getting a ticket for just sitting here? Everybody goes, yeah, that would be dope because I know I would get to the place early and I would leave. You're going to be there for the same time anyway, right? So um, just presenting different options and questions about very simple and practical things um, is, is one of the areas. But it, it, when it's tailored, it's more along the lines of what is, what, where are they being violated? And a lot of times they're more open to tell you, yeah, man, I just drove over to Jersey and I had my Glock has 15 rounds in it and now I'm a felon because it's supposed to have 10 over here. You know, and finding that different particular space and then helping them through that and presenting the solution is usually how I approach it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so uh, the, the organization uh, uh, that I lead is uh, salvation and social justice. We have a tagline, liberating public policy theologically. Um, and so the majority of folks that we're talking to are in the faith community, particularly the black faith community. Um, and you'd be surprised how, well maybe you wouldn't, but how harsh um, and, and how um, retributive um, even folks in the black faith community, all that folks have been through. But some will say, well, he deserves to go to jail or this or that. So in that space, right, we, we use theology. We talk about, you know, the civil rights movement, the ab abolitionist movement. We talk about Moses, let my people go and all of that. Uh, and dealing with history and dealing with the theology, when you deal with people at their core, it really makes them think and change. Uh, when I'm dealing with conservatives, uh, we, talk, we talk numbers, talk about dollars and cents. Does this make financial sense to you? Right now we're incarcerating 
Uh, New Jersey disproportionately incarcerates black children at a rate of 30 to 1, even though adolescents, regardless of race, commit offenses at similar rates. And we do this at the price tag of $289,000 per year per child. Does that make economic sense? What could we do in the life of a young child at, per year? What could we do with those kind of dollars? Uh, exactly, yeah, you, you, you could put them through all kinds. I mean, uh, if, 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 if it's a progressive, it's pretty easy because they basically wanted to go there anyway, right? So regard, and, and, and for libertarians, it's very easy. Freedom, right? Regard, this is, to your point, this is the issue. One of the, uh, we, we, we passed a bill in New Jersey called racial impact. And it, it forces the legislature to stop before they pass a new law. It forces them to look at what the disproportionate impact could be. And it's meant to slow down this hypervigilance in passing all kind of new laws which could be harmful. A lot of people did not want to push this law originally because they were afraid it wouldn't get traction because it said race in it. This law was passed across bipartisan lines just because we did the work and had conversations. It made sense. I, I love what you said. Um, I have two parts I want to bring up. I'm going to bring up, bring up the, what I talk about always when it comes to criminal justice is I actually bring up cruelty. It's really what I do. I talk about cruelty. And there are two aspects of this. One, and this is racial. One is white, and one is, you mentioned, the black community. For the one thing you said is what everyone can agree upon now. We can agree upon the war on drugs is bad, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We knew that in the hood 30 years ago, right? We knew that when it was destroying our families 30 years ago. When Ice Cube came out and was talking about the hood, we knew back then how bad it was. And the sad part is what you told us was just say no. Didn't matter. Just say no. What's wrong with you people? Just say no. And I think a lot of people in the black community, I know people like this, this hardened us, right? Remember what Bill Cosby was doing? Right? This hardened us to go, yeah, just say no. You know, I've been to events. I went to Manhattan Institute event talking about uh, racial issues. They didn't even bring up the war on drugs. All they talked about was the broken black male. That's all they spoke about was the broken black male. These are black leaders speaking about the broken black male. And all I said to all of them was, shame on you. Shame on you. The, ma the, the black male is broken because the system broke him. That's the reason why he's broken, right? That's what I know. So I think you have a, a, a harshness through some of the black community who just almost out of self-defense mechanism. They're like, so I talk about the cruelty of it. You, oh, you, you watch, they walk away. They literally walk away. They will not even touch it. They will just walk away. Yes, they don't know, they don't know how to act. When I literally say, shame on you. You didn't even bring up the war on drugs. How, are you how in the world is the black male supposed to do anything when literally one-third of the population is in prison, right? And then they can't get jobs, and now you have a system to where everything's stacked against you. Luckily, this is, if you remember this, years ago, there was actually a, a lawsuit that actually worked. It was a, a young brother in uh, Harlem, 
This is in the, I think, the early 90s. Cops are coming by on a drug bus. They used to arrest everybody. Remember that in New York City? They would come by the corner and arrest everybody. Well, this guy literally is working for Morgan Stanley. <laughs> Get, I'm sorry, on his way to getting a job for Morgan Stanley. He gets arrested, right? Got a degree, the whole deal. He's in the middle of the, of the process of, of, getting, um, of getting hired. Well, they did a background check. If you know in finance, you do a 10-year background check. He had that arrest record. They wouldn't hire him for the arrest record. So he sued them. And he said, I was arrested. I happened to be on the corner, you know, going to the deli, and the cops came by and arrested everybody. And all of a sudden now, I can't get a job. He actually won. But he's the rare guy. Most don't. Most don't. So there is an issue of that. But that's about cruelty. Two parts. The first thing I say is, I want you to think about something. Think about an addict in your life. And if you've ever known an addict, and I've known a few, one very close to me, my mother. If you know an addict, the addict doesn't get help until it's too late. By the time the addict gets help, right, the addict has almost always lost their health, lost their friends, lost their family, lost their money, lost their property, lost their health, lost their good looks. And your answer is, put them in prison. How cruel are you? How cruel, what a monster you are to think the right answer is, I've lost everything. And the answer is prison. Let's put this person in a cage. And then go back to civil rights. There were a lot of amazing civil rights activists in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, but most of them failed. What changed in the 60s? Only one thing, TV. TV was the answer. When people actually saw how cruel segregation was, when they, did, when they couldn't see it, it was just whatever, it's those guys, it's those people, who cares? But now they got to watch cops sick dogs on people. They got to watch that and go, oh my God, that's my people. Oh my God, I, I, I'm, I'm, that's not, I'm not that mom, that's not who I am. And all of a sudden the change began. You talk about cruelty and how cruel this actually is. This war on drugs is cruel. I want to think about something. Civil asset forfeiture. Right? I'm going to explain something. I'm not anti-cop. And many people who are pro-criminal justice reform are anti-cop. I'm not anti-cop. I'm not. I'm not pro-cop either. I'm on the record. I, I did, an, I did an, uh, an interview. I'm sorry. A, a debate. And they said, you know, should, should there be extra punishment for someone who kills a police officer? I said, no. They said, of course, but they put their life on the line. I said, so do Marines. So what? They're, they're humans like anybody else. They are people. They are citizens. And when, when your loved one dies... You don't ec hurt extra because your loved one was a cop. You hurt the same amount regardless of who that person is. Now, I don't want cops to die either. I don't want anyone to die, cops included. They're just humans. The average cop doesn't go into the force thinking, I can't wait to beat up brown people. The average one doesn't. There are some, don't get me wrong, there are bad cops, absolutely, but the vast majority don't do that. They believe they're doing the right thing. But then they come into the force, and you have civil asset forfeiture. What does that mean? I have to go get stuff. But not just that. I'm also given accolades. I'm given promotions by arrests. So I got to arrest people, right? What if people aren't doing things wrong? I still got to arrest people. It doesn't matter. So when I got to go grab people, grab stuff, get money, get cash, get goods, when I got to arrest people, am I going to do that in a, in a, in a gated uh, community? No. First of those people don't have cash. They don't have cash. So I can't, so I can't be an appropriate pirate because there's no cash. So I can't do that well, right? So number one, no cash. Number two, those people vote. Mm -hmm. 
Number three, those people know the people in power and have influence with them. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hunt there. Where am I going to hunt? I'm going to hunt in poor, immigrant, brown, and black communities. Hopefully with people who already have criminal records, who now are afraid to even say anything because they don't want to go back to jail. Who can't vote, who don't have money, and if they're immigrants, they don't trust banks, so they keep cash. And if there's a drug war, they can't use banks because of the war on drugs, they keep cash. Boy, that's lucrative. I'm going to keep hunting there. So I may have come to the forest with no concept of race whatsoever, but then all of a sudden, for the last 10 years, everyone I arrest is brown or black. What do I start thinking? Everyone who's brown or black should be arrested. As I said, my father was in law enforcement. He was a cop and he was a corrections officer. He had a friend who went undercover. And I remember the friend who was undercover. I was a kid, maybe eight years old, nine years old, around the Bronx. And he'd walk around the Bronx and start pointing at people and going, yeah, that guy, he's, gonna be, he's, gonna, he's this. And that guy, he's that. Or her, yeah, she's this. He was sort of announcing their crimes by looking at them. Why? He had been undercover for four years. Everyone he had been with was a criminal. That's all he knew. So everybody was a criminal. This is what the war on drugs does. It literally is a bad system that makes good cops apathetic and bad cops monsters. That's what actually happens. That's why I'm against this. There's a racial component too, absolutely. Self-defense mechanism in the black community, which we have to break. And then the white community is with us. Yay, thank you, I'm glad you're here. So uh, Larry actually just hit right on what I was gonna talk about. Um, in his, in his la- no, it's cool. It's perfect. It was the perfect segue. It was the absolutely perfect segue. So it, what, what's sad about the whole thing is that it, it took the drug war to, um, to hit white neighborhoods for this to become an issue, right? Let's think about it. Let's be honest. I mean, Ocean County, Tom's River is like, it, it's, it's like heroin haven, right? I, I mean, but now all of a sudden everybody's paying attention. And then they're paying attention to their kids getting locked in jail, right? It, it, it's, 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 it's sad that it had to come to this, you know? Um, but it's more than just a drug war, too. So you got to look at all the other little things, all the little misdemeanors people are getting locked up for. And, 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 that, and that's the thing that when I'm talking to people, when I was running for Congress, that I would talk to them about is that, you know, you get this little $50 fine that for you might be a little $50 fine. But for the guy who can't pay his electric bill, that's, that's the world. Now, all of a sudden, they triple that $50 fine after 90 days. And now it's $150. Well, now you don't pay $150. Now there's a warrant out for their arrest. And now they're on their way to work. And when they go on their way to work, they get pulled over and there's a warrant out for their arrest and they get locked up. Well, then they get hit with bail that they can't afford. Thank goodness in New Jersey we've fixed that recently, right? So it, it snowballs all because you got hit with a $50 fine for jaywalking or you got hit with a $50 fine for some minor little thing that really doesn't hurt anybody. It goes back to don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, right? If you're not hurting anybody and you're not taking anybody's stuff, you shouldn't be getting in trouble, right? So there shouldn't be a $50 fine. So there's also a lot of talk of decriminalization, and that always comes up when I'm talking to people. But there is a small, although decriminalization is like the ultimate, right? But what do they do when they decriminalize things? They start adding fines to it, right? And here we go, boom, right back through, right back through the system. So the, so the question was, how do you, you touch with people, right? Regardless as to what spectrum they come from, ask them a question. Somebody knows someone's been locked up. It's that prevalent in our society that I don't care what neighborhood you're in. I don't care where you grew up. I don't care how fluffy everything was because mommy and daddy worked on Wall Street and you live in a 6,000 square foot house. You know somebody that got in trouble. And you know that person that didn't deserve to get in trouble. And get them thinking about that situation. Get them thinking about the times that they've had a brush with the law when they got pulled over. 
Should you get nervous and have butterflies when you're getting a speeding ticket? Who doesn't get butterflies when they're getting a speeding ticket? Or, or when you just see a cop. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> they, listen, it's, it's so bad that if people are speeding in unison on the turnpike when they see a cop, somebody will jam their brakes. I don't know how many accidents are caused by this that cause people thousands of dollars because they're fearful of the, rep the repercussions because they're going 15 miles an hour over the speeding limit. And there shouldn't be a speed limit as far as I'm concerned. It's a different story. But, uh, but, but nonetheless, nonetheless, it, it, all, those little, all of those little experiences, all you got to do is talk about one of them. And people understand why it's important. That's why it spans the spectrum. So if, if, if when you're out there and you are talking to somebody, and again, this is an easy topic because we all pretty much agree. I, I, there's very few people who don't agree. Although I did have one person comment on the page, on the event page that, Screw them, tell them to stop breaking the law. Right? Right? I think we, we do have some people like that. There's plenty I, of people I, I like that. I don't think this country is 100% that way. It's not. I think there's a lot of people who think the law is the law. The law is the law's law. I'll give you an example that's, uh, that may sound funny. I was, it's off, but it'll, it'll connect. I was talking to a woman who was a, a, an intellectual property attorney, IP, intellectual property. And she was explaining some law. I forgot what it was. I'm going to make this up. It was something like, oh, well, copyright law or patent law, I think it was copyright law, is, you know, it's uh, 70 years after the death of the author. I made that up. I don't know if that's true. But uh, something like that, right? And I said, wow, that's a, that's a terrible law. 70 years? That's terrible. She goes, oh, no, but Larry, it's the law. I said, no, no, I know it's the law. I'm saying it's a bad law. She says, oh, no, no, you understand, Larry. We had to adjust this law so that we could come in line with international law. I said, wonderful, that's bad international law. And she got mad at me. She got angry at me. Why? I wasn't saying she was stupid. I wasn't saying she wrote the law. But in her eyes, law equals righteous. By default, they're the same. So the, fault that I, the, the fact that I would say the law is bad or stupid, I'm a heretic. I'm a heretic because I said that. And there are still many people in this country who believe that because it's legal, it is good. Don't forget something. There were people who, when there was an escaped slave, were like, send them back. It, it was actually the law to send them back. Mm -hmm. So the one point that I'm constantly making, everybody, yeah, it, it, right. Yes. The, the point that I try to make is legality and morality are not equivalent. Yes. There is no equivalency. It, it's just fact. You, you cannot equate the two. Just because a group of people got in a room and said, hey, we're going to put these words in this piece of paper that say certain people got to act a certain way doesn't mean it's right. Okay? This, it, 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 that is what it is. But I'm going to give the mic back. You it. Yeah, you can just, just keep the mic. So uh, a follow-up question. This really goes to something that, uh, that Larry mentioned, talking about really the change happening uh, with TV and people starting to see what, what was happening uh, with segregation and all the, all the violence associated with that. Do you think that we're reaching a similar tipping point with the internet where we could see, since we're, a lot of these uh, you know, instances of police abuse are getting broadcast and going viral and, and different things like that, are, are we reaching a tipping point where we could see a change on that scale? I think we have a problem, though. Yes and no. Yes, because it's broader, but no, because media right now is very fractured, right? You go back to the 60s, there was really three channels and there was one media, right? We were all very similar in what we saw, right? We all saw the same thing. Now, 
There are people who will watch something and go, yeah, no, it's this thing because my tribe says this thing is a certain way, right? So my tribe says all cops are good or all cops are bad, or my tribe says everyone who's arrested is good, everyone is bad, right? My tribe says this, so therefore I will create a narrative around anything. Think about this. You remember Flandre Castillo, right? Flandre Castillo, if those don't remember, was literally murdered, murdered by a cop in front of his family on video. I want to be very clear. He was murdered by a cop in front of his family on video. And no punishment. None. People looked at that, at that and said, nah, the cop was scared or no, the cop was. They made a narrative around that because their line says cops are right. And so while I think we're going to see more, I think with a fractured media, people now sit in their own bubble and create narratives around it. I'm not sure. To add to that. Oh, sorry. To add to that, too. Um, so the Philando Castile situation is one of we, we After the verdict came out, we went to Minneapolis, St. Paul to do a class around it because we was like, tensions are going to be high. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. Um, so that's, that's a perfect example of, um, you know, you can see it, but if you haven't really had the conversation around why this is actually unjust, even with the, you know, uh, the guy Yanez, well, he's not an officer anymore. It's very difficult to get law enforcement officers fired because of the union, right? This guy was fired. So you saw fit to get rid of this guy, but you didn't see fit for him to, you know, to go to jail for murder. Um, so th- these are some of the examples that we highlight because not only are, is it just fragmented, but also... Um, I think the media, you know, or certain sections of it, we call it the most effective devil in America. Um, they're very good at overloading. So now if I show you a bunch of it a bunch of times, now you become numb to it. So I think they're doing that very, very well as well, especially then that's the television. Then you got these. You know what I'm saying? So um, I think that it's, it's very important to make sure that the narrative, um, one of the narratives with the Castile thing was, oh, he had THC in the system even though he was a lawful firearms owner, but because he had THC in the system, he, can't, he couldn't lawfully carry a firearm, so forth and so on. Well, number one, THC stays in your system for a very, very long time. So it wasn't, so what the narrative that they were trying to present was he was high. And the, okay, even if he was high, if he was high on weed, because that's what you're saying is about THC, I'm pretty sure he's not a threat. He's probably chilling. So saying this to say, explaining those narratives to add to, um, to get around some of the fragmentation as well as breaking some of those tri- tribal, you know, um, well, weed is bad. Well, really? I smoke cigars. That's cancer. That's what it is. You know, so just having a, something as a lineup, when people run into their, their tribal definition of why cruelty or, you know, all of those things are okay, having something on deck to kind of like give them that in a very practical way is a way that helps that. And t- to your question, um, I do think that people are being desensitized on purpose. Um, But when you make it very personal, using that example of whatever happens, bro, you smoke, right? All right, and I know you carry. You sometimes have been chill, and sometimes you've carried because you've still had that THC in your system. 
Do you think you, des- you he, that dude deserved to die if you have had the same scenario? That's the most important thing you just said. Right. He did it all the time. They do it with Eric Garner. Yeah. Well, he shouldn't have been selling cigarettes. cigarettes. So he deserved to, to die. die. Is that what you're Right. And they'll, and they'll dodge the question. Right. No, 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 no. So you're saying right. he does. How cruel are you? Right. Right. Well, it, he had. He had. Well, you know what? He had THC cynicism. So he deserved to be murdered in front of his child. Right. You got to make it real, real practical. Yes. You got to make it real practical and real simple. You might not have the statistics to break down everything, but when you make it a very, very personable, it's, it's real. Honestly, with something like that, it's probably better to not have statistics. Right. Right. It's, you, it's, you're it's, connecting with emotion. Right. I mean, it's, it's just. Rationality. It's just right there, and I think that um, then what happens is you can kind of turn that fragmentation or that desensitization. You it can it can do a one eighty because then they re-see all of these things that's coming across their screens again from a different lens. So they're not as desensitized because you've made it personal, and then they start asking those questions, you know. But um, but I do think that we, you know, in the sixties it happened. Um, I also think that it was also going hand in hand with the. The victories that we've had for justice um, through television, through other things. One of the other things is um, that goes hand in hand with those same timelines are like um, the '60s, Black Panthers, guns, yeah. firearms, television, right? The '80s, war on drugs, guns, Reagan. You know, all of these things are kind of like in alignment. So I think that's um, we have an opportunity now with the advent of new technology like the YouTube's, the Instagrams, and all of that. To reapproach that and not separate them, because they'll make the war on drugs separate. Now there's a war on guns. You know what I mean? So all of these things are like interconnected, and I think we have an opportunity when we see that fragmentation and the and the over uh, sensationalizing of it to make it personal, to make each individual look at it through a different lens. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I. Uh you know, the part that very, you know, that a lot of folks don't want to deal with, right? Philando Castile. Um, yeah. So whether it's him uh, or the host of, of others, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, THC in the system, right? That, that only matters. THC in the system only matters depending on who has THC in their system, right? Just a couple of states away, marijuana's legal. Uh, I mean, think about the audacity to say some, other, some person deserves to die over THC when folks in power have decided now we're going to legalize and allow mostly, right, young white entrepreneurs to make money off of something while hundreds of thousands of poor black folks are sitting in prison for the very same thing. I I know a lot of, like, like, one thing we always have to deal with is America's original sin is racism. I know, so, so Philando Castile, or whether it was the brother in the Walmart with the toy gun, right? Second Amendment rights, right? You know, so, so, right, I'm not a Second Amendment guy, but I see this stark super racism in it, right? Exactly. So, 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 so the Black Panthers, right? Ronald Reagan was all for gun reform when black folks showed up with guns. Nixon was before. Exactly. 
right? Because it depends on who's carrying the gun, right? So, so you know, but I, so I'm, I'm saying, right, it, it's really about who smokes marijuana, right? Who carries the gun? And Philando Castillo, I mean, he did by, by, by all these folks own, by their own standards, he did everything right. He did the respectability. He was licensed. He announced what he was doing. He was a family man. He was taking care of his children. He had a job. And yet he was murdered in front of America. And, well, you know what, because the cop was scared. Think about that. So they were justified in having fear of black people, and that is enough to kill somebody without impunity. That's the nation we're in. That is the depth of immorality. And until we deal with that, we're not dealing with anything. That's all I have to add. There's a, a, a secondary piece to this, and that is almost a worship of the state, right? Almost a worship of the state, to where the state is always correct, the state is always right. I, I do a lot of consulting with criminal uh, attorneys, defense attorneys. That's one reason why I watch this happen. Some of you may not know this. At the end of a trial, in a normal state trial, if you've been to a trial, you've watched it or been on a jury, the, at, at the end when it's over, there's final summations. The person, the accused, says their side, right? And then the state says their side. In, in the case of the federal, the state says their side. Then the accused says their side. Then the state gets a rebuttal. <laughs> I'm not joking. Most of you don't know that. The, the, in a federal case, the, the, the get a rebuttal. So they get to go, whatever that guy said, all lies. That's, that's how bad it is. Not just that. You know it's okay to lie but you can't lie to them. So literally, this, is a, this is absolutely happens all the time. I'm gonna, I'll be brief with this. It's an interesting story. You may like it. All right. So some guy who looks like him, who looks like him, robs a bank. He has a gun. He puts, waves the gun in the air and says, everybody get down and give me the money and nobody gets hurt. If nobody moves, nobody gets hurt. Right? They give him the money. He fires one round in the air. He leaves. Right? It's not him, though. Not him. Looks like him. But they're having a problem in the hood. You don't like him at all. So you tell the cops and tip line, yeah, I think it's this guy. And because he has a gun, it goes in the red flag laws. It's a gun. Oh, my God. Because the gun itself is evil. Right? Yes. Gun itself is evil. Right? Because, because the, 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 the priesthood has deemed that this is an evil weapon. Therefore, that becomes evil. If he had a bat, it doesn't matter. But gun, evil. So they arrest him. Now, he's poor. He's got a, 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 a minimum wage job. He's not doing that well. He gets arrested. When he gets arrested, what do you have to do? They do a perp walk at his job. They arrest him at his job so that everyone sees him get arrested. And they all assume, oh, my God, he's that bad guy. His reputation is now destroyed. He didn't do it. They now arrest him, bring him there, and he, I'm the prosecutor. Here's what I'll, I'm the DA. Here's what I say. We got witnesses. Three, put you right there. I'm lying. That is 100% legal. He may not lie to me at all in anything he says. If he tells me a wrong middle name, he's going to jail. If he messes his middle name up, if he's stressed and gives a wrong birthday, 
He's going to jail. That's fraud. That's perjury. How dare you? But I can blatantly lie. I got three people who say you were there. <gasps> in fact, your buddy Johnny, he's in the next room right now singing. Totally lie. I don't even know who Johnny is. I made that up. I can say that. No problem. I'm still not done. And then you know there were 20 people in there? We're going to charge you with 20 counts of attempted kidnapping. That's never going to fly. But if he doesn't have a lawyer, he doesn't know that. He's not savvy. And because you fired that round, 20 counts of attempted murder, also never going to fly. But he doesn't know that. And plus bank robbery, plus for every one of those, you had a gun, so we're going to add five years, and for every one of those, you're going to have 7,000 years in jail. Right. Now he's scared like there's no tomorrow, right? I throw all that up there, bail's going to be $100,000. He can't get the bail. He can't do anything. He's scared. He wants the plea. He's not guilty. He didn't do it. But what if he, what if he goes, I'm going to fight it? Great. Now, if it's in New York, he sits in Rikers Island for at least a year, and he's probably going to get killed, if not gang raped, or both. I'm not making this up. That happens in Rikers Island. That happens all the time in Rikers Island. So that will happen. And again, he didn't do it. Not just that he's lost his job, right, because now he can't go to work. Probably lost his girlfriend or wife. Now what does the kids think? Bad, bad, bad. And he didn't do it. But let's say he did do it. Let's say it's him. He does it. And he says, yeah, but I don't want all those charges. So I'm going to go to court. Right? And the, and the guys will tell you what. Don't, don't go to court. We'll give you two years. Felony, two years, you're out. He says, no, I'm going to fight it. Because he wants to fight it, they will give him more years. That's correct. Because he wants to fight it. Now, the argument the state says is, well, you're using our resources. He pays taxes for this. It's in our Bill of Rights that we're supposed to get a trial by our peers. These are our rights. He is being punished for using his rights. He's being punished for a system that he paid for. And that's totally fine. This is our current system. And most people who know this go, yeah, it makes sense. Why? We worship the state. The state is correct. The state is okay. Here's, here's the third point oh, to that. So everybody in the hood that's had that experience for the last 40 years is like, yeah, we're not telling. Then when we don't tell because y'all lie, oh, y'all are bad for not telling. Not telling because we, don't want, we know that you come to the community to lie. I didn't do that. He's lying. That from the officer, from the from the foot soldier to the DA, you I saw you two cops getting together. You had your 48 hours to make sure your story was right and exact. The lie. Then everybody in the hood go, yeah, we're not snitching. Oh, you you guys don't want your community to get better. No, you have jack booted thugs in here attacking us. Then we, as we say in front of the street, first of all, even if it's just, yo, bro, I'm selling weed. I just happen to have the weed. You all want the weed. That's called exchange. That's called entrepreneurialism. Oh, hey, I happen to have some weed right here. You have money? My eighths are $50. Here you go, allegedly. 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 Right? So then when that happens, then when somebody goes, yeah, you were selling all of that, those drugs to this person, da 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 All right, cool. I got caught for my eighths that I sold. Well, look, you need to tell us this, the same thing. Here comes the 17 lies. And after all of the lies, we sit there and go, nah, I'm good. Just hurry up and process me so I could get up to the CFCF. You know what I mean? Because it's Sunday. I might have a syrup tray for breakfast. You know what I mean? And we've accepted that. Then now you paint the picture as, oh, those guys want crime in the neighborhood. Never asking the fact that, A, you from 
boot from uh, boots on the ground to DA, all things like never mind the fact that we know that if we take the plea bargain, we give away our right to a, 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 a retrial. Yep. We give away, like in a lot of states, your ability to have a jury trial. It, a, 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 a plea bargain is between two lawyers. The judge could be like, nah, bro, I'm not doing that. Yep. Then you can't appeal. But they pressure you into taking the plea deal because if everybody took their thing to trial, the system will blow, blow right up. The cops are given accolades for arrests. The DAs are given accolades for convictions. Right. And a plea is a conviction. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you get pleas, they get, see, I'm a great, I'm a great prosecutor. I get convictions, right? right. But I'm going to go one step further when it comes to prosecutors here. Let's go back to our, our story. He didn't do it. He accepts the plea and does one year in jail anyway. And he's a felon, two years in jail, he's a felon, his life is over. Two years later, a year later, we actually realize it was him who did it. And so now we arrest him and we charge him with a new, because he robs other banks. So we get him and put him away. The DA has no obligation to say, tell, tell him, none. If he doesn't have a lawyer or people looking out for him, he'll never know. He'll just simply keep that, and the DA will know he's innocent and has no, no, no desire, no requirement. In fact, it's against his nature to do so because if he does it, a conviction goes away. So it's actually in his best interest to say nothing and to leave his conviction there. That happens all the time. They find the right guy, and the guy who did the year, or did the two years, whatever it is, still in jail, life ruined, oh well. Ed Rendell prosecuted a man that for first-degree murder he knew was not guilty and still pressed for the conviction. Yeah. I know that for a fact because my cousin was in law enforcement and city council in Philadelphia, and he hated Rendell with a passion, as all people should. <laughs> Yo, Rendell told me in the steam room when I was going to run, I said I'm going to run as, you know, I'm, I'm a, I said independent. Rendell told me in the steam room, you'll never win. You'll never, you won't even get on the ballot. That's what Rendell told me in the steam room. You'll never, you'll never even get on the ballot. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Thanks, bro. Cool story. <laughs> so the fourth part to this scenario is, is here. And, and, and really, really, it's the foundation of this whole system. Because this whole piece plays out differently depending on whether he's rich or not. Yes, oh, 100%. Right. Yes. Because if he's rich and guilty, he has more rights and will walk away free more likely than if he's poor and innocent. Yes. That's the system we have. You can buy your freedom yes. highly more likely if you're rich yes. than I, I if you are innocent I always say if, if you can write a check for six figures for your defense in America, you can get an absolutely fair trial with fair sentences if you're guilty. If you can write a check for six figures, you can get that. If you can write a check for seven figures, you can get off if you're guilty, right? right. right? If you can't do any of those, you're guilty. Right. The question is just what can you play? You're guilty. Well, there, there, is, there is one exception to that. Well, there's probably more than that, but one happening right now with the Varsity Blues scandal with, uh, you know, you had the celebrities that were paying off uh, in order to get their kids into college, and you had, uh, what was it, uh, Huffman, uh, Felicity Huffman, who she took the plea deal immediately, and she's going to do 30 days in prison. 14. 
or four, sorry, sorry, four, fourteen days in prison. And and Becky, on the other hand, um, did not immediately afterwards get hit with more charges. Yes, how dare you? <laughs> yes, because remember, her crime is heresy. Exactly. Her crime's heresy. But then you have the sister whose schools are bad and puts the kids in, in a different zone and gets something like five years. See, because that's the system we have. So because our system restricts where your children can go to school by their zip code and their financial access. And so, so this is the system we have. Again, right? Yes, yeah, because she's rich, she basically gets a two-week un- uncomfortable moment. Right. It will be uncomfortable. Right? Exactly. It, it, it's going to be uncomfortable. But for the sister who's trying to actually do something for her child, whose entire life is threatened by their child going to a horrible school system, she gets the harshest extent of the law. So, so a lot of that, a lot of that goes into play with one, a couple of things. What each of you said, right? So, you you brought up the fact that people worship the state, right? We call them statheists, by the way. Okay, um, you ha- we have we have the cops are allowed to get forty eight hours to get their story together, right? Uh, different rules, right? And then we have the rich versus poor, different rules. Mm-hmm. See, the problem is there's multiple systems, but they're all controlled by one central authority. Okay, so when you have these centralized authorities, they have a monopolization. They've monopolized force. So now they've monopolized force. They can do whatever they want. There's no competition. There's nobody to tell them how to do things differently or anyone else to step up and say, hey, we're doing things differently over here. You know, we're still enforcing these laws, but, you know, people aren't, you know, we, we, we don't lie to people when we're interrogating them. So we, we, actually, we actually respect the Fifth Amendment and we, we actually we go through and we give everybody what they're supposed to, you know, have in the fourth amendment and, and all the amendments to make sure that, Hey, those founding fathers, they kind of knew something like there's supposed to be this system where people are, you know, innocent until proven guilty. They don't have to, they don't have to incriminate themselves. You got to make sure you get your warrants before you go knocking down people's doors. We go through all that and it makes sense. But when people worship the state and you have statheists that give them that monopolized force, you're never going to get around it. That's part. I want to go back into. I'm, obviously, I'm the gun dude. So, um, that's part of the reason why the attack on the Second Amendment is so. The, you know, the the, the armed uh, armed populace is. It breaks the monopoly on force. You see what I'm saying? So for me, it's like, and I've t- I don't. I, I did a. Um, I posted a Facebook post about a week or so ago, and I was like, I didn't lose any gu- guns on a boating accident. I, I'm not. That that's not true. I, I don't even. I'm from Philly. I don't even be on boats like that. That's not. That's never happened. Uh, my firearms. I still. I have all of them, as, which is my human right as codified in the Bill of Rights, um, to defend my myself, my family, my loved ones from all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's that's what in my community. That's what that is. And if any officer or any you know foot soldier or any politician. Attempts to try to violate my first, second, third, fourth, whichever one, you will be met with extreme force. That's it. That's it. And I think that what happens a lot of times is talking about more fragmentation. I think they do a they do a very good. The state does a very good job of fragmenting. Um, you know, well, you're white, so this is you know what I mean. The execution of the playbook, tying it to the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. That's melanated to non-melanated. Doesn't matter. 
I think what happens is they do a, they have very good PR and they make it seem as if and you, we become lazy cuz I don't take plea deals. I'm let's go to court. Let's do it. I'm going to exhaust you the entire time. I'm going to tell my friends, "Hey man, don't take a plea deal. Hey man, you got a gun." Hey man, and even if you make a joke about it, it's so so you know if like the zombie apocalypse happens, like those rules won't matter no more, right? right. You want to have the things to, you know, defend yourself. So I think the, the big thing there is that's why the attack is so heavy on the Second Amendment because that breaks the state's monopoly of force. And you got to understand what your level of commitment to that is in order to execute that when you're within your right to defend your life, your liberty, and your pursuit of property and happiness. I think that the Bundy Ranch was the, the, bu the Bundy Ranch was the perfect example, right? So the Bunny Ranch, they want to go. He, they want to take his cattle. Was it? Is yeah, that what they, they want to take his cattle? They taxed them for grazing like over a million dollars. Ah, land. right. So what they then do is public, uh, public land. Right? Public land. All of a sudden, a bunch of militiamen show up. Yeah. The cops show force. They don't back down. The cops go away. Right. That literally was what happened. Cops went away. Right. It worked. Right. Imagine if that was the way it was here, in cities and in the east. Right. How many times do cops just bust in people's doors all the time? And the funny thing is, cops act like that's what's happening. They get SWAT teams, they knock down doors, all that kind of stuff, right? And most of the people who are fighting them are throwing their guns in the sewer when the cops come by. They're throwing their guns in the garbage. They're, they're, they're throwing their guns out the window. They're not shooting back. And I think you, you see a difference, right? If, if more people were like, no, you may not come in my house. Less people would come in their house. On top of, on, on top of, whether it was the Bundy Ranch, whether it was Ruby Ridge, what a lot of these places um, over time, and that part doesn't happen to make it onto mainstream media, right? Um, even Trump just gave a pardon, complete pardon to the, the Bundy family, right? A, a year and some change ago, that didn't make the news. Um, the react no different. You can take it even further. Tupac shot two off-duty officers for harassing him. They were drunk, belligerent, in regular, you know, in regular clothes. He shot him. Like that happened. Went to court and was like, "Yeah, I shot him for these reasons." Didn't go to jail. I think that when you're talking about when we, we're having this conversation about liberty and abolition and justice, you know, power doesn't always like go like because you said some cool words like in America. Harriet Tubman had a gun. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, in America, the founding fathers to this place was like, 1775, they was like, yo, send them rifles back, bro. And they're like, nah, cuz, we're not doing that. 1776, we shot them. <laughs> I think that the biggest thing there, and that's why the linchpin for me is the Second Amendment, because my spirituality, my diet, my going to the, to the gym, my, you know, advocacy, my wanting to, for mental health and stability... You know, um, if you don't have the means to defend all of those things that you believe in, right, because the other side don't always go peaceably. Power sometimes only concedes to that type of power. And I think you have to kind of like be cool with the fact that you might be made to look like the bad person to defend your freedoms. Even with those founding fathers, that thing go wrong, like they getting hung. That's just what it was. Nat Turner, that rebellion lasted way longer than just three days. They knew their level of commitment to that. Harriet Tubman going back and forth, you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, Ida B. Wells, these people in these spaces was like, yo, it's cool if you're going to call me an outlaw because you're making unjust laws. I'm cool with that. I think that everyone has to have um, that level of acceptance of what your level of commitment to that rumble is. 
You know what I'm saying? And if you're not a gun, well, y'all in Jersey, but if you're not a gun owner, you should, you know, you should definitely look into that. Yeah, and so, um, so you know, a couple of things, and just to, just to add to to the discussion because I I fully respect everybody's viewpoint, but just to add in the in the advocacy and civil rights and the black struggle piece, and this is coming from a guy who uh, probably leans more Malcolm than Martin, who has a deep love and respect for the Black Panthers. Uh, but so my personal piece, right, of where I where I choose to situate myself um, in regards to faith and social movements, you know, I look at Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who really pushed out the British without firing a shot. Uh, I look at the greatest moral leader in the United States, Dr. King, um, who again did it through. A real peaceful means and I'm not discounting because don't get me wrong um, Harriet Tubman and the shotgun was essential and the slaves didn't get free unless there was a civil war so I fully understand both pieces but just to to offer right there has to be kind of these these balances and at the same time right as much as I'm that peaceful preacher I'll also be the first one to say you know, the United States worships the Revolutionary War, but you let a bunch of black folks say they're going to take up arms and get their freedom that way. And we're thugs. We're horrible. We're criminals. I think we got to be cool with them titles, though. Uh, like, look, right? hey, look, no, no, nobody's fighting that. I'm right. just I'm just trying to lay out the hypocrisy right, 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 right. because the hypocrisy is real. And and so we can celebrate the Revolutionary War, but if other folks want to start a revolution, it's evil. Right, right, exactly. So, so that, that, that hits on a point that I kind of wanted to hit as well. So we, we talk, we're talking about the Constitution and our rights and, and the Revolutionary War. Well, they knew they were criminals when they were, when they were fighting the revolution, okay? They didn't write the Declaration of Independence. Now, not, everyone forgets about the Declaration of Independence, by the way. Read, read the list of grievances and tell me how many of those grievances we just talked about tonight. How many of those grievances did we just talk about? Yep. So yeah, that, that nobody's wrong for wanting to have that conversation. And if you're okay with that being that criminal because that law is unjust, then God, God bless you, go do it. Because, because they knew when they were running furs that they were criminals. They knew when they were buying liquor from the French that they were criminals. They knew when they weren't doing what the crown wanted because it made more sense for their families that they were criminals. And they didn't care because that's what being American means. Being American means that you're going to do what's best for you, your family, and your community. All right. And we have to accept those titles and we've got to make sure that we have those things. And as far as balance goes, you were talking about having the, the Dr. King approach versus, you know, and, and Mahatma Gandhi. Well, Washington had Jefferson. Right. There's always you have to have the yin and the yang. You got to have that. Was exactly. Everybody. And Malcolm had, and Malcolm had King. Right. I, I mean, you, you got to have it. Dr. King owned a lot of firearms. A lot of firearms. Dr. King was working with the reason why he was able to chill because the, the uh, SNCC and a lot of those other people that weren't so uh, uh, turn the other cheek and nonviolent was backing them up. It's no different than when him, him and Malcolm came to an accord and was like, listen, when he said, yo, 
Our brothers and sisters over here are fighting for a little bit of liberation. They're nonviolent. But me as Malcolm, you know, and me and my squad, we are not nonviolent. And if you're trying to attack them for just trying to attain a little bit of liberation, then we're going to have to holler at you. I'm paraphrasing. Malcolm ain't say that part. But, but my point in that is, you know, there has been no revolution. Even if you're taking Gandhi, right? Gandhi still had a, a background, and that was just the tactic that Gandhi used. And it won in a space of, okay, they're actually on their home turf. You know what I'm saying? Like, all of these other different things, I think that Gandhi was a tactician that, that's the reason why Dr. King studied him so thoroughly. He was a tactician, like, yo, we're going to go make, he was literally saying, we're going to break the law. Let's go make salt. Let's go to the Indian Ocean. The British was like, bro, you can't make salt. Yes, we can. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's certain things that you have to be okay with being an outlaw. I am not going to Chicago. I do not have reciprocity in Chicago. Firearms ownership. I am not going to Chicago without a gun. That's it. That's it. This is the, and we need more people to not be statist and say, yo, this ain't, I had a conversation a few days ago with uh, Rob Pincus. We was in Phoenix for uh, the Gun Rights Policy Conference. And I was like, yeah, I tweet when I'm on, when I'm on Judge Knapp's show, I was strapped. On the stage, allegedly, right? Put that in there, you know. And I'm going to tweet it, strapped, Orange Judge Knapp show. I want to bring up a, a, an important piece of this, though. First off, the two, two sides. First off, the idea we're talking about being outlaws. That's what Americans are about. Right? right. Every one of our heroes, every one of them is an outlaw, right? Everyone, Gandhi, uh, uh, um, uh, all our founding fathers. I mean, they're all they're all outlaws. Star Wars, the rebels. They're literally the outlaws, right? I mean, they're all the outlaws, right? That's all they are. So that's a thing. But at the same time, I don't want to project the idea that we're up here saying everybody should, be, you know, create chaos right. or there should be no order. I'm not saying that. I was talking to a guy from the country, and he said, well, Larry, I know you're this libertarian. I don't know what that is. He's from a country in Europe, right? And I said, I want you to realize something. I look at our police force, at our government, as an arm of us. It's an arm of us, right? So I asked him. I said, look next door. You see, if, if, if you look in that window and you saw a guy, he had a joint. He's smoking marijuana, right? Right now. Do you think morally, not legally, morally, it's okay for you to kick in his door Grab that uh, cigarette out of his mouth, right? Grab that door out of his mouth and put that guy in a cage. And if he doesn't want to go in a cage, shoot him. Do you think that's morally okay? He said no. I said, and why can cops do it? Why can cops do it? Everything that should be done by the government is an arm of us. If you don't think it is morally, that you have to do it yourself. But if you believe that morally you could do it morally, then the government should probably be doing it. The concept is, is there a victim? Right. If there's no victim, how can it be a crime? Right. How can possession of anything be a crime? If I stab someone with it, that's a crime. Right. If I steal his, that's a crime. Right. If I hold him at you, don't go anywhere, I'll stab you. That's a crime. Right. But the fact that I hold the item, how is that a crime? That's not a crime, that's heresy. And I don't think any government should be punishing us for heresy, right? Can a community do so? Of course. Can you shun someone who has a gun because you don't want to have a gun? Absolutely you can. Nothing wrong with that. You just can't stop the person from having a gun. 
Can you shun someone because they have a pen that you don't like? Of course you can if you want to. But can you stop them? No, you cannot. It doesn't get rid of our First Amendment rights. We can still have an opinion or feel it's wrong or not associate with somebody. The issue is, do you think that you should use force to stop something? If you say no, why is the government doing it? That's the critical piece. So there can be order. There still can be order and no chaos while we can still have a voluntary free society. So to, to touch on that real quick and then yeah, absolutely. I just want to just real quick just to touch on that. So, and the the rebuttal to why why can the cops is well because we voted for people that that put them in that place. And then my question is, all right, well, how many people voted for them? And they go, well, most of us. I go, okay, that's cool. I go, you know, most people wanted Barabbas over Jesus too, right? right. I I don't understand the moral. I don't again. I, your more your legality and morality are not equivalent because I'm pretty sure Jesus was much more of a moral individual than Barabbas was. Yet people voted to make sure Barabbas got his freedom. So we got to be very careful with who we're giving our power to, and we have to make sure that we, the people, are checking those people once we give them that power, which shouldn't really be power in the first place. But All right, we're going to take a couple questions from the crowd right now. I think this was touched on, but I do want to... uh, There was a statement, an article put out by Charles Barkley recently, and he said that the Democrats only care about black people every four years. I'd like to hear from uh, the three panelists to see if that is absolutely true, in their opinion. (laughs) (laughs) White guy can answer. White guy can answer too. My tea should lead it off. Um, I, I, I think we're stuck in a world where everybody is looking for clickbait right now. Okay, so. What what Charles Barkley is doing in that instance is he, he's striking an emotional chord to get attention to what he's trying to write, okay? But but he he's he's also he's not wrong either in a sense because if you look if you look at a lot of the major cities where the Democrats are in control and you look at the statistics and you look at the the programs that they've put in place, how have they helped anybody? What's what how how have, how have the people of Houston been helped? How have the people of Detroit been helped? How have the people of Chicago been helped? And listen. Newark, everyone keeps talking about this revitalization of Newark. I've been to Newark very regularly. My daughter plays hockey. We go to the Rock. You know, we, 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 we're, we're, we're there. I mean, I don't see it. So maybe I'm just not there at the regular times, but something's not right. There's programs and things that they're putting in place, but it's also emotion. And I, and I touched on that, and I, and I think a lot of voters go for emotion, and, and the easier sell is the Democrat sell. So I, I don't necessarily think they're going... It, it's hard to say, but I, I, I don't know if it's 100% accurate. It's 100% accurate. Okay. Um, there's no doubt that's true. Now, to be very clear, the emotional part, you're correct, right? The, the Democrat rhetoric, Democratic Party rhetoric, is very good. Democratic rhetoric is very pro-anybody who's not white. Very pro on that, right? Just is. It's very good, right? At inclusion and diversity and we care about women and and the LGBTQ community and people of color. It's wonderful rhetoric. The the Republican rhetoric is terrible. It's not good rhetoric at all, right? So if I'm listening to rhetoric, of course, a person of color, I'm going to vote Democrat. But don't listen to rhetoric. See what they're actually doing. Look at what they're actually doing. Bill Clinton put people I know in jail 
just as much as Reagan did, just as much as Bush did. They all did the same thing. I didn't see Obama stopping the war on drugs. I didn't see that. I didn't see Obama uh, talking about race at all until he had to. I didn't see that either. So, yeah, it's 100% correct. But it isn't just Democrats. It's Republicans, too. I actually had, I remember when I was running uh, for uh, governor last year, I had a woman who actually said, well, I didn't know how you would ever want to legalize drugs. You know, my, my, I think it was her niece. I don't remember. It was a family member. My niece, you know, died of an overdose. She died from drugs. I said, actually, um, let me ask you if, 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 I, if I could. I had an addict in my family also. Let me ask you, was it that she was off for a few days, maybe in rehab or something, or maybe in prison, and she came out, and then she tried it, and then she didn't know what was in it, and she died? Yeah. I said, yeah. Um, that's how most overdose, right? They, they don't know what's in it. I said, if that was legal, she would have known what was in it. And your niece may still be an addict now, but she wouldn't be dead. The, war, the, the drugs didn't kill your niece. The war on drugs killed your niece, your niece. And if you want to blame somebody for that, I get it. You've lost someone you love. You want to blame someone. Great. Blame every president since Nixon. Because not one of them stopped the war on drugs, and every one of them could. Every one of them could have taken marijuana off the Schedule 1 list. Every one of them could. Yes, the, they can take it off. I know why. Every single one, every single one of them has not taken it off, and they all could have. You want to blame someone for your niece's death? Blame every president since Nick. Nixon began the war on drugs. Everyone else copied it. Every single one. Democrat, Republican. It's 100% true. You guys want to weigh in? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so to, 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 to give this some, some, some practical um, application, uh, very much see, and, and I totally agree, uh, and, and I both look at their rhetoric and their actions. So, you know, one, just to be clear on the Republican side, the rhetoric is horrible. It's explicitly racist and the actions are very racist in a lot of ways. Uh, on the Democratic side, the red rhetoric is great, but the actions are non-existent. One of the things that we've done here in New Jersey, which was a paradigm shift, is we got all the black leadership. Well, we got some of the major black leadership together. And we are fiercely nonpartisan. We don't, we don't roll with the Democrats. We don't roll with the Republicans. And this, was very, this is very different than a lot of black clergy, especially, because you know what happens. At election time, they all show up in our pulpits, right? They start playing the saxophone, and all of a sudden, they're singing Negro spirituals, right? Eating fried chicken and right. Exactly. And we we and we are we we really shook things up in New Jersey because we are agenda driven. The problem is with the people. The people. Right. We do not know how to actually lean on these elected officials. So we the first problem we have is that we open our doors and let them come in and tell us what they're what they what they say they're going to do for us. That's that's the wrong. No, we put the agenda together and tell you what you're going to do. 
We put together a 10-point agenda. We have a piece in New Jersey called the United Black Agenda. We have the leaders from the NAACP, the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, New Jersey Black Women Lawyers, uh, representatives from Rutgers Law, uh, clergy, uh, Fair Share Housing Center. And we put a 10-point agenda together, and we sit with everyone, all of the political leadership, the majority, the minority. We just had a meeting with the Republicans last week. This isn't about personalities. We're not giving out endorsements. All we care about is our agenda. And when you come through on our agenda, we'll give you kudos. And when you don't, we'll blast you, regardless of who you are. That's 100%. So for me, um, because both sides were kind of like... Um, so I, I equate that to certain um, pro-gun organizations, right? It becomes, oh, well, the left will say, well, these people, they're bad for you, they, whatever. And then history will go, well, well, that organization actually did this. But then when I'll talk to that organization, I'm like, yo, why y'all not talking about this thing that y'all did? Oh, so y'all actually just want the bad press. You just want the horrible PR. Okay, cool. If you want to let your narrative be told that way, then Cool. Um, anybody that doesn't want to change um, the rhetoric or the actions are telling you by their actions or lack thereof. So for me, that was one of the major reasons when Mike reached out to me and was like, yo, you should run for office. I'm like, bro, my life is complicated enough. You know what I'm saying? But, it's, it, you know, and I had one of my favorite artists is Big Boy from Outkast. He's a libertarian for over 20 years. And I'm, I remember her, hearing the first time, I'm like, libertarian? Everybody says, what is that? What's that? You know what I'm saying? And so the principles, that agenda that aligned with that, it's created a space for me for, um, because I, I'm around, my, a lot of my following is Republican. If you're in the gun in industry community, a lot of your following is going to be more right-leaning or extreme right-leaning. But I got to call, you know, I got to communicate and speak to and for my hood. So I get, I'm cool if everywhere else, as long as I'm solid in my hood, and I don't never forsake that, then I'm good. So when I'm having these conversations, when Donald Trump Jr. is following me and all of these different things, I still got to keep it right up the middle. That's why the Libertarian Party was excellent for me and for my demographic. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So yep. for me, it becomes, all right, um, as an elected official, I'm going to identify with a party that I can have the conversation from both sides because there's things that's on the right that I think they're right about. I think there's a lot of rhinos, too, that say one thing, their rhetoric is one thing, but then they like, yeah, well, no one needs an AR. There's, there's, there's Republicans that say that. There's Democrats that saying, yeah, you know, unity and, and inclusion and protecting the community, but you don't need guns. That happens on both sides. So I think that the concept, the, the middle ground, and I, I really feel like, um, I mean, I've, I've been around the country like eight times at this point. I really, I'm sensing more and more people going like, yo, both of y'all groups are lying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so to your point about that 10-point agenda and just making sure that those decisions, accolades, critiques, criticisms, and support are given from an objective perspective, I think that that's more of a power thing than just going, well, I'm, you know, I'm blood or I'm crip. I'm, you know, Democrat or I'm Republican, you know? And just real quick, so I kind of tiptoed around the question, right? And I shouldn't have. So, so the fact remains is that the Republican Party does the exact same thing. Okay, and I'm going to come out and I'm going to wear my stripes for a second. Okay, both parties are terrible. Yeah. 
They're horrible human beings, the people that run those parties. Okay? I am not, not going to step back from that, and I will never step back from that. Okay? Here's the deal. They did, the Republicans do the same to me. Okay? The NRA is the weakest group on gun control. They're terrible. But every four years, guess who's sending me an email and wants my money? And guess who's telling me what they're going to do for me because I'm a gun owner? They all do the same thing. Okay? So here's the problem with that. It's identity politics. Okay? You watch the news and you watch an election and you see this group voted this way and that group voted this way. And Let me explain something to you. I don't belong to any group. I started this meeting off tonight with saying I'm an individualist, and I believe in the individual, and I believe the individual is the core of love, freedom, and everything we have to offer, prosperity, all of that. It all starts with you. I'm an individual. Don't put me in a hole. Don't put me anywhere. I'm I'm a round round peg when you want to put me in a square hole. I'm a square peg when you want to put me in a round hole. It's not going to work. I have to evaluate the decision to determine which one of these are in moment to moment. Exactly. Yeah, moment to moment, which one of these are good for this current reality and situation? Exactly. So the truth of the matter is both parties do exactly that. And to sit here and to say that one party does it or the other doesn't is unfair. We need to make sure that we're aware of that and that if you're an individualist. Charles Barkley never won a ring, I think the the first time you answered the question, you answered as a politician. So I'm glad glad you corrected that. But any other questions right here front row? If, If you want to say your name, say it. If you don't, make up a name. I'm Tim O'Brien. Uh, I'm with the Libertarian Party. Um, one thing I think we have to do is stop the legislation machine and the judicial machine. They're both against all of us. And the minute something happens in society, people run to the politicians and say, stop that. And then they get the judges and, the, and they go in, the prosecutors, put those people in jail. And that has to stop. I had a friend who was a bridge cop. And towards the end of his, his career... He started realizing that he didn't want to be a money machine for all the, the, the big wigs, Fumo and all those guys. And he pissed off his sergeant and got stuck on dispatch during the wintertime. Wow. He memorized the motor vehicle code. And he said, there are so many anachronistic laws in there. So he would write, instead of writing a speeding ticket, he would write a ticket for uh, if there's a dog in the car, unre- unrestrained livestock in a motor vehicle with a $5 fine from the early part of the last century. It's not in the computer. There's no way to process it. But it's in the books. There are so many crimes you can get charged for that are still there that shouldn't be there. There's, why do we have a huge library of laws? Control. Don't hurt people. That's the law. How do we stop the legislation machine? There you go. No, the, the first thing is is to not assume that because one thing went wrong, you have to stop it, right? There are two parts to this. One is creating a, a rule for anomaly, and the other is zero tolerance. These are two terrible things. And I do, I do my, my day job is I teach business, what I do. I teach, I teach colleges, I teach uh, organizations, what I do for a living. So one of the things I bring up is this idea. All right, you've all had this. You, have, you work in a, in a company, and they have a conference room. In a conference room during lunch, many people go there and they eat lunch and they work and they talk and they go back and forth and they, they brainstorm and some work gets done. And everything's great. For three years, you use the conference room, no problem. All of a sudden, Bob spills coffee. The second Bob spills coffee, what happens next? No 
No more food in the conference room. No one can have food in the conference room. That's it. We're stopping this right now with no food in the conference room. So what's now the, the repercussions of this? The repercussions are the people who actually did the work and enjoyed that, they stopped. They now go eat instead at their, at their desk. So now you've got sloppier desk, horrible desk, people not communicating well, you're less efficient, people aren't using the room that you're paying rent on. They're no longer using it, except for the elites. Jane is a partner. Jane goes in and brings her coffee and her lunch. What are you going to do, fire Jane? She's a partner. You can't. Bill goes in. Bill's top sales rep. You're going to fire him? No, he's the biggest moneymaker. You're not firing him. So the elites go in and do whatever they want in that conference room, and everyone else sees it and goes, it's a rigged system. It sucks. I hate living here. That's what happens whenever you start making a rule for an anomaly. The actual answer is, hey, Bob, clean up the coffee. And then keep going. We have to change that mindset. But the next thing becomes zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. So it's not just don't have lunch or no food, nothing. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance always makes things worse. Never better. Always worse. Because once you have zero tolerance, now no one talks about it. Now there's no gradation of whether I spilled coffee or I burn the place down. It's exactly the same because it's zero tolerance. We have to stop that idea, that concept, that culture and, and, and fight against it and you'll see that begin to stop. Sorry, um, when that happens, Larry, because I'm assuming it comes from real situations you've experienced, um, is it perhaps also part of the situation where the people make the decision that you're just gonna stop because somebody made a mess? Aren't those people perhaps the ones who are the ones who go out to the steakhouse for lunch? Yes. And, and they're not there to see what's going on in the conference room. So all yes. they do is hear about, oh, somebody got a stain on the rug. And so we can't do that anymore without ever realizing what the social dynamic was and its importance to the environment. It's the unintended consequences that come from everything we don't realize, right? Unintended consequences continue to destroy things. And uh, I can give you many of them, but quickly... There's so many unintended consequences from prohibition in general. I'm gonna give you a quick rundown of all the times prohibition has worked. Finished. <laughs> there is nothing but unintended consequences to these things, right? In New York State, I'll, I'll stay on the gun, the gun law. In New York State, we made the SAFE Act. The SAFE Act was the idea that now we'll start uh, you know, to make gun, gun control, right? So what happened was it created a black market. That's when all of a sudden everybody lost their guns in the boating accident, right, all of a sudden. All of a sudden now no one can tell you when you buy ammunition. What happened? Who bought ammunition? I didn't buy Who buys ammunition? Nobody does. So all of a sudden now it actually makes law enforcement's job harder, right, because people won't report. Now there's no more records. This happens constantly. It is people who are knee-jerk reaction. One time an actual congressman said this on TV. He said, when there's a tragedy, it doesn't matter if the law is symbolic or not, just as long as we do something. But even a symbolic law still, Damage to your point, at the end, has a guy or a gal with a gun who will put you in a cage, and if you don't want to go in, they will shoot you. Got right over here first, and we'll come over. Hi, everyone. For those that don't know me, um, I'm Matt from uh, Young Americans for Liberty, uh, Northeast Deputy Regional Director. Um, I'm a student at Rutgers Newark as well. Oh, 
so I wanted to bring this conversation back to the drugs themselves, obviously. So when it comes to um, marijuana, obviously it's classified as a Schedule One drug, um, you know, along with heroin and other drugs that, you know, make marijuana absolutely pale in comparison. Um, I want to know more about like um, a bit, if you could explain more about like the origins of how it became a Schedule One drug and how it was, a, you were able to, you know, how obviously police were able to, you know, incarcerate people at such high rates, even though it's a seemingly harmless drug and what we can do about that. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, what are some of the worst drugs that we actually have out there that will really devastate populations? Meth, crack. Remember, heroin. These are some of the worst drugs that devastate. All of those are directly because of the government. Right. The war on drugs created meth. That's an unintended consequence. Right. We're going to ban drugs. So what happened? They become very expensive. If any of you know guys who who work on Wall Street, Park Avenue, a good chunk of them are either doing cocaine or, seriously, or now the new thing, if you don't know this, is they they crush up Adderall and they snort Adderall. That's the new cool thing. Ed's nodding, yes. That's the new thing is is snorting Adderall, right? So they snort Adderall or they snort cocaine. These are relatively safe drugs compared to others, right? But they're expensive. If you you make a million dollars a year on Park Avenue or Wall Street – you don't mind having cocaine habit. You're good with that, right? You can afford to drop eight grand. Who cares? You don't, you don't care. But what about if you're, if you're poor? You can't. You can't afford these drugs. What do you do? You create meth, right? You create crack. You create these cheap drugs that are far more devastating, that kill far more people. Right. You, create, you put fentanyl in your drugs. To, 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 it kills more people. That's an unintended consequence. I wanted to bring that up. That's what happens. Sure. So you, you were mentioning, Larry, that, that cocaine... It's a relatively safe drug, right? And, pe- and generally, generally it is, but I think everyone's hit on tonight that prohibition is what makes things less, less right. safe. And there was just happened in Pittsburgh this past weekend, there was uh, a party at an apartment building and there were five overdoses on cocaine. Three ended up dead. And what led to that, it was because of the prohibition of it. Um, people fleed the party when people started ODing. Um, afraid of the legal consequences. So this is just one of the other things that, no that makes us more... Right. Exactly, exactly. So the origin of cannabis in this country, uh, I forget what the guy's name, he wound up to become the, uh, what led to be, be known as the drug, the DEA. He became the first czar. His, his, um, his famous phrase was, he thought that... Uh, Cannabis, because not marijuana, that's a, that's a whole other racial component. Um, cannabis made white women want to sleep with Negro jazz musicians. That is the origin of cannabis prohibition in America. I thought it was also Mexicans too, wasn't it? That's where they turned it into the marijuana word. You know what I'm saying? So the origin of prohibition of cannabis in America is racist. I think that the cool jazz dudes are like sleeping with the chick that I like, so we got to criminalize this. That's his name. Yep. Yep. That's the, the, the father yep. of the war on drugs. Yep. yep. That's the father of the war on drugs. The border, and they were and they were smoking the marijuana, right? So between the blacks and the Mexicans, that's where prohibition came. It was a means of controlling those populations. Uh, Reefer Madness. There were movies put out there, which showed uh, ravenous black males raping white women. And having these relationships with each other, because you know how pumped up you get when you smoke weed, right? You're just a crazy, just, right? 
You know, instead of showing somebody with 15 empty pizza boxes in front of them, right? But this is what, this, this is right. Again, these foundations, the whole war on drugs, the foundations are in race. And, it's fa and there's a direct linkage, a direct linkage from, you know, whether it be uh, the slave trade. And let's be clear, getting back to why we're here tonight. Um, slavery has never been abolished in the United States. Never. It is still legal. And it is it moved from the plantation to the prison. And prisoners are slaves, according to the law. And when, when right, it's still in the 13th Amendment. And so and so we see a shifting. You see, once once uh, emancipation, so-called emancipation takes place, there was still labor demands which caused the peonage system, convict leasing system, right? Which we still have. Many, some of us are probably wearing products crafted by slaves in the prisons. That is what we have today. And this is just, and as the explosion of the prison industrial complex, uh, the, the war on drugs, all these things, and the, the war on drugs, in its, in, in, in its modern-day conception, the prison industrial complex is a response to gains of blacks made during civil rights. Richard Nixon says explicitly, his, his folks say explicitly, this, the, the whole Southern strategy, all of these people, the whole war on drugs was a way to control who? Blacks and hippies. Those folks who were fighting against wars and stuff, right? Exactly. This is, this is literal. This is what we have. It is a means of controlling. And this is why I think these conversations are so important. Because there, there's this, I, I, I love this conversation. And I, I want to sum it up religiously at the end. But I love this way. I think we're both so far on the spectrum that we meet. And, uh, you know, and... There's, there's a lot of things that, you know, we probably, I, I can't even say that. There's a few things we don't agree on, but there's a lot we do, right? So by trade, I'm a liberation theologian. Liberation theology is about getting people free, right? And maybe I'll give my little summation now since I'm in, I'm in the moment. So every Sunday, right, in my church and our, our, our religious belief, right, we as as Christians, right, we we come from the Jewish religion ultimately, right? And you have this Jewish rabbi named Jesus who is constantly challenging so many oppressive laws. Laws that that are stigmatizing people, criminalizing people, dehumanizing people. And the major piece, the major shift is uh, one of the one of the uh, religious leaders comes to him and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, what what's the most important law? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is just like it: love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments 
hang all the law and the prophet. You know, the big the biggest thing for me in the black church is to get people not to beat people up with a thousand different laws. If we can just do these two, we'll be all right. And, and, and our work, right? If we could just love God and love people, we'd be all right. I'm good for the night. <laughs> Do you mind if I go? It's kind of a combination of a, a question and also a statement. <clears throat> so we talked about, I heard somebody mention Thomas Paine, but he talked about common sense. But we all know that the Declaration of Independence, I always teach my students that this was one huge divorce paper. So we can look at Thomas Hobbes and I think it's a, uh, John Locke. But Thomas, Thomas Hobbes says, you know, let's stay with the queen. John Locke says we should have a social contract until that social contract does not work anymore. We're living in a time where things are not working anymore. And I think one of the things that it's not working anymore because the school system has taken out civics. So civics is a very vital lifeblood in our social contract, understanding these laws. Because now laws have become taboo. It's the boogeyman. Nobody wants to read them. If nobody wants to read them, nobody can't understand anything. And I tell people all the time, asking questions is a sign of intelligence. So my question would be, how do we get citizens, the school yep. districts, to implement civics so we can begin to heal all these cancerous things that are happening with our politicians because our politicians are taking advantage of our political ignorance. Absolutely, 100%. Um, when, I, when I ran for governor in New York, I had an education plan, and part of my plan, one of the top things in my plan was ending standardized testing until high school. You want to actually teach civics? End standardized testing until high school. Why? Why are kids not being taught civics? Why are they not being taught home ec? Why are they not being taught shop? Why are they not being taught any things? Because those aren't on a test. The test is ELA, which is English, language arts, and math. That's it. That's why they're taught all those things, because all the money that goes to schools is based upon the test scores that the kids get. All the teachers are rewarded based upon the scores that the kids get. You want to actually have civics get taught in school? Get rid of standardized testing until high school, and you will watch other things come in that matter. They all got removed as more money comes in. This is a, this is a money issue, and the unintended consequences of all this testing is everything that matters but doesn't matter on a test is gone. That's the answer. Agreed. Right. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. Because it's, it's on my platform. That's right. what I'm running on. Not even running on. This is, so when we do these classes around the country – um, and something that could definitely, in, in school, okay, you might not go to jail, might not. Um, but in real life, especially talking about firearms, if you're not fully aware of what the laws and, and statutes and things of that nature are in your locality, you go to jail. So one of the things that we did with you know, Black Guns Matter was going everywhere, making sure that, yo, your rule here is not the rule here. Here's the app that you should download as you cross, just to get them understanding of civics in regards to a firearm. Going back real quick to the Philando Castile thing, Minnesota is not a duty to notify state. Now, the unfortunate and uncomfortable part about 
everything that Philando Castile did right was I wish I could have jumped in his body at that moment. He had no legal obligation to even mention a firearm to Officer Yanez at that time, which in turn cost him his life. That's a lack of civic understanding, right, in that locality. So one of the things that we do in those classes that are dealing specifically with firearms is get people involved that way. Um, we've taught in a few public schools in Philadelphia, um, and it's, it's firearm safety too, but it's mostly conflict resolution and de-escalation. I think all of those things go part and parcel. Yeah. But I think if we have external and outside forces saying we need these things and hold our public servants, that's a question that the people, they want you to vote, you got to talk about civics back in the schools. You got to talk about trades mm -hmm. back in the schools. You got to talk about home ec back in the schools. You got to talk about, you, you don't even know what a T-square, like, you don't even know what an accounting budget is. Mm -hmm. So having, make, the short answer is, I believe that making people that say they want to serve and public servant as our, as our represent, representatives, they need to have a firm footing on saying, I want to put civics back into schools. That's my perspective. So you, you touched on the social contract, right? That's a bit of a hot button for me because the United States government voided the social contract when they said that police officers no longer have to serve and protect and that their only role yeah. is to enforce the law. See, a contract requires two agreeing parties. Okay, so we agree that they represent us and that they serve us, right? That the, the government serves the people and that we're supposed to work in tandem together. But once the government now announces that they are in a position of control and power over you, they have voided that contract because it's no longer are they partaking in that contract. They've left that contract completely. They no longer operate under the terms of the original contract. So we, we have to understand, A, we need to get them to view themselves as public servants again. Okay, so Maj brought up earlier that they need to be public servants again. Reverend Boyer mentioned that, no, we need to give them the agenda and say, this is what we want you to do because you serve us by putting them back in the position of being servants. Elected officials are not elect, they're not, they're not leaders. We are the leaders. Everybody in this room is a leader because you came here tonight because you want to see something happen. Okay, so remember, you're the leader. We're the leaders. We need more civics in the classroom. This is a debate that I've gotten into with many of teachers. We need more home economics. We need more of that less standardized testing. The standardized testing comes from centralized control. Yes, it does. Because Excuse me, I apologize. How much these politicians are making in terms of um, contracts with these companies in terms of testing, the books, mm -hmm. all these contracts that they're making on the side, they're supposed to be public servants, and our, our tax dollars are paying them. But they're paying them basically minimum wage, but they're making so much money on the back. Off, off of these uh, bribes, kickbacks, and campaigns, donations, all those side things. So how do you, what's the question? How do you um, legalize or how do you litigate someone who's, they have no moral compass because their moral compass is more to the, the dollar than, than to helping citizens that they're supposed to be helping. My last point is, oh. and you mentioned okay. a social contract. That was contract. a tough question, and you got another point. But, but, Making me I'm work gonna, tonight. I'm going to close out, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> when we look at the Pledge of Allegiance, it says, to the republic. Most people don't even know what a republic is. Oh my God, and a republic is simply saying that politicians work for the people, and that's, the, that's my period. That's my point.
and, and, and you're right. It, it's a republic. And, and, and not enough people focus on that. So what is a republic? A republic is a group of different types of people who have come together for one cause, and they have their own way of hashing things out in their state, but every once in a while they need each other for defense, right? Or we need each other to make an international trade deal or something so that New York can't have different tariffs than we have in New Jersey who, who, than they have in Delaware, right? So that's the idea of having that, that union and then the republic. Now, the republic part comes in where because if you had pure democracy, we'd have Barabbas and Jesus all the time, right? So you need to have equal representation for the people who aren't as populated in their areas that we are, because again, their state is just as important as our state. The people in Oklahoma are just as important as the people in New York or in LA or in Houston or in Florida. Oh yeah, LA, I mean, well, I mean, nice, you know, the, the fallacy of the earthquake would be nice, but you know, but, but the Republic part, it, I mean, that, that's so huge, but it goes back to your civics thing. If we're not teaching civics, people don't understand what the difference between a Republic and a democracy are. So you asked, how do you make it happen? And let me tell you, it's incentives, right? You have to make sure they're incentivized the right way. If, and right now, to your point, you, you know this, right now they're incentivized by kids getting good scores on tests. But imagine if they weren't actually incentivized that way. If instead they were incentivized by, let's say, how well a child did when they graduated high school, whether they got a job or not, right? Right now, most high schools are, are, are graded based upon how many kids go to college. Not whether they graduate college. Not whether college was valuable. Not whether, anything, but not whether they went to $100,000 worth of debt to go to college. That's irrelevant. They went to college. Change the incentives. Incentives in today's world without technology could be simple as, are the parents happy? It could literally, we have a way of grading through just asking if parents or kids are satisfied. If you change incentives, people respond to incentives. We're up with police force, same with teachers, same with everybody. We respond to incentives. Change the incentives, you'll change the system. I think I remember hearing you talk about uh, school on a little podcast called Joe Rogan. I did. Uh, a question for the panel on a practical nature. Yeah, this has already been touched on by the Reverend and a few of the others. Uh, we have three candidates here, either the past or the present, and we have an activist who's able to organize incredibly strong and actually get things passed into law. Is there a way that the panel could describe best strategy for making law or forcing, I know we talked a little bit, but just getting laws Past, either to repeal them or to pass them. Is there a best strategy, a best thought? Do you want to take this one? Should I start? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> um, but it, it's a great question, and it comes back to... I love this civics discussion, because one of the... And, and it goes back to the question about the Democrats and why agenda is important for us and understanding civics. Also, how do you make your government work for you? Um, and so understanding, you know, so, so for us, right, urban communities, black faith spaces is very important and really been working on some projects. I wanna figure out how to uh, engage within the black faith space becoming um, the place to teach civics. Because during civil rights and all these different things, right? And really, now to this is where we're really gonna uh, fist bump, right? 
back when the majority of black churches were Republican, right? Our bishops, uh, our bishops, and, and there was a time, right, especially during Reconstruction and when black political power was at its height, blacks were Republicans, right? Uh, a lot of that civics and that understanding and that teaching took place for black communities within black faith spaces. So I so appreciate that because that's a major piece to me. But to, to your point, it all goes back to understanding how government works. And so for us, uh, we, we have to use our networks and leverage those networks strategically um, on political figures. So my network is faith spaces. So whether it's Methodists, Episcopals, Roman Catholics, we have a network. We are in every city and town, every county. And so when you have a strong network to the, to the, to the Republic discussion, right? When, if, we, if we're in agreement on an issue, then I say, pastor such and such, father such and such, we need you and your congregation, because every faith leader represents hundreds of people. And we need you. This is our agenda. And we need you to sit down with ex-politician and tell them this is what we're looking for. And, and when we're all on the same space and when we show solidarity, right, and when we have a common agenda and for us, and also when we don't uh, stay on soapboxes only to have them taken from underneath us to fall on our face because we're not consistent. Because at the end, because we're really only for sale to the highest bidder within the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. But when we stay true to the agenda and we stay united on that agenda and we leverage the political figures, even as messed up as this system is, it still re responds to the threat of the vote. And, and as broken as the system is, it still responds to that. And that is the ticket to civic engagement. And what I try to teach young people, right, because we register people to vote, go out and vote. That's just the beginning. Like, that's not where it ends. Like, you failed if all you did was voted. That just buys you a ticket to the show, to the show that you're supposed to be orchestrating, right? That was a bad example, but y'all get what I'm saying. That just buys you the ticket. That allows me to say, this is what you're supposed to do. And that's how we have to, so it's common agenda. And, and to be very clear, the majority of the laws that, that we're dealing with are laws which are trying to abolish and undo the heavy hand of the system on people. But it's about coalition building and it's about leveraging strategically. I think there's a, there's a second piece for someone who doesn't have the extensive network that you have. Right. And that is very simply, be more popular. And it may sound silly, but it's true. I mean, Kim Kardashian has made change. Right? right? Seriously, right? And not, not because she's so super smart. I don't know if she's super smart. I don't, I don't know her at all. But not because she's super smart, if she is, because she's popular. And all of a sudden now people care because, to your point, I'm popular. 
I have a fan base that I represent. And that's the fear of the votes, right? Exactly. If Kim Kardashian says, vote for this guy or this gal or this thing, right. people go, huh, maybe I should pay attention to that. Right. And now they decide to register to vote. And, and exactly. So if you don't have an awesome network, popularity matters. I've, I've made things happen in New York that, that changed because of, I was on Joe Rogan, right? Being more popular made more people say, huh, maybe we should make some changes. Right. I, I agree with that as well. I agree with that as well. The, the concept of whatever you, whether you got 100,000, so my reach, I might have 100,000 people on whatever at any given moment, right? Yal did a video that I think is at like 750,000 views that came out like a couple days ago. You know, just stay on message, communicate the message and get boots on the ground. So that's, that's one. And if you don't have 100,000 followers at any given moment, um, really it's just, if we, we're talking about civic engagement, we got to engage with the community. Hey, man, this is the reason why I think these things are good for the community or they've been good for me as an individual. What do you think? You know, and then just translating that. Um, there's this power in that. There's po even if it's only 100 people, there's power in that because then that then galvanize. So, for example, us galvanizing people. OK, everybody, we're going to vote for you, Maj. We're going to vote for you November the 5th, November the 5th. I'm going to go to MajForPhilly.com. I'm going to donate. I still got to make sure that they're directed on Vote day of vote. Okay, you love me, great. I'm popular, cool. Now make sure that that translates because they feel that attachment and they know exactly where they got to go in their polling station, and we gonna get them there on that day. So I think if you do that from a, um, from a practical level, from if it's a hundred people, if it's ten people to a thousand people, I think that engagement works a lot. But it's you know if you got that digital following, that helps. But if it's if it's you know all right, I'm gonna touch a hundred people this week. That helps as well because those I'm telling you, even if they argue and again, I've had people argue me down and then a t two weeks later, I'm watching them talk to somebody else, say the same exact thing that I was saying to them, but they argued it from the other side. So I think that it, this, this power that this is the original social network. You know? Right. Having having that um, ha having that uh, social media piece is great. But you got to get out there. You're right. You got to shake hands. You guys saw what I did when I ran. I, I touched all 62 counties of New York State more than once. I'm still doing it. I was in like five counties uh, this weekend. Again, right. out there shaking hands, meeting people on top. But you've got to do the community. Right. You've got to actually physically be there. Right. And, and just to touch on the, the point about how do we craft specific legislation, right? So we, we're going to do it through civics. We're going to do it if we're getting community engagement. But the one viewpoint when we're doing all of that is we got to understand is how does this law work and does it hurt anybody? Right. right. If the law hurts somebody and somebody will suffer negative consequences because of this law, then it can't be a law. Right. And we have to approach it from a different angle. So everything, is, everything these guys said is perfect. They couldn't say it any better. But we also just got to keep in mind that when we're doing that and you go to that meeting or you go to meet with somebody in your community or you go to meet with your leader, make sure that whatever's being proposed doesn't hurt somebody. Right. Because that's why we're here today. It's because right. all of these laws hurt people. Right. Right. So let's make sure we're not hurting others. Repealing more, not just adding more. Exactly. And, and that was the premise behind this racial impact piece. Right. 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 And so we we and 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 we wanted to expand this. And this 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 was a law that actually tries to get get lawmakers to think about their laws before they make them. Right. That's the whole essence of it is to say, listen, no, wait, do an evaluation. Does this disproportionately hurt anybody? Right. And we and we did this law under Chris Christie. 
right? This was not Chris Christie signed this. He did a conditional veto, which made our law stronger. And we thank you, Governor Christie. We agree with you. And it was bipartisan because everybody, if we take two minutes to say laws hurt people, right? We, everybody can, no matter, you know, we've seen this over and over again. And so, and we're, and we're looking at trying to expand this beyond just the criminal justice system. We have education laws, which hurt people. We have, we have economic laws, which hurt people, healthcare based laws, which hurt people. And that's the whole premise uh, behind that very thing. Let's let's try to get to a society that's helping people, not hurting people. So I think you guys have done a, a really good job of piecing together what I consider the core of the problem, which is something like the centralization of power in the hands of the state sets up a patchwork of negative incentives of which there's no oversight on. And then it's a race to the bottom that empowers them and takes from us. Layered over top of that, as Larry mentioned, is we, the, the state and the media, have a vested interest in dividing and dichotomizing us into tribes. So you got political tribes, you got racial tribes, you got cultural tribes, and well, like, like you said, Larry, they basically produce half-cocked narratives. And with that division and those uh, half-cocked narratives, it kind of keeps a hamster wheel of, of legitimizing those incentives. So essentially, we're turning into a low-trust society that perpetuates the whole thing. So what would you say are ways that we could expand the conversation to focus on that core and punch through those narratives? Good question. Um, I just find commonalities with the demographic that I'm talking to. When you find a commonality, even if the commonality is pain, we, we suffering together. It's, it's, you ever see dudes that like, some of my friends like, they'll have like one Newport. Everybody's broke. And it's wintertime, but everybody puffing the Newport. They're sharing the Newport. It's like, yo, if you all are addicted to cigarettes, it's like, bro, let me get a drag on your port. There's commonality in that, and that person suffers and understands. So it might be seemingly silly, but then if somebody's like, yo, I got a whole, it, it'll be a joke. Yo, I got a whole pack of Newports. Everybody get one full cigarette. Finding that commonality in the suffering, explaining that, and then after the commonality, finding a solution to that one particular problem. I think that's what punches through more than anything. Not because that's scalable. I don't care what the actual issue is. Gun. Yo, I just had the gun. I live in North Philly. I didn't know. Okay, that means you're missing information. Let me give you the information. Then you're going to tell somebody, yo, 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 don't do that. I caught a case like that way. Spend, you know, you know, you're not a felon, right? Yeah, spend a $20. Go down there. Get your license. Woo, 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 because I don't want you to catch that case. Then that person goes. Then this person goes, yo, they talking more. They're like, yo, why would, if this... Is something that is my birthright to defend my life. Why are we even like paying a license for this? Then that person comes and say, yeah, why are we? Then they start to organize collectively, but they recognize the suffering first. You know what I'm saying? So and now that's just with guns, weed. Yo, I had an eighth. I went to jail for it. Well, why? I don't know. Um, well, what was the decriminalized amount? I don't think it's decriminalized here. Well, maybe we should get it decriminalized. Yeah, because yo... Make sure that the state that you in 
is decrim and know what the amount is because of such and such and such. Then all of those people go, but wait, why is this criminal in the first place? For me, what happens on the punch through is finding out what the initial wrong happened by the unjust law, i.e. suffering, is, and then translate that. Every single thing is scalable that way. So that's been my experience. Uh, just, just quickly, you know, even what brings me here tonight, you know, Dan and I, we, we, we did some work together several years ago. And, you know, in the first couple of sit-downs, you would have thought that well, in the first couple of sit downs, we were probably the farthest away from folks who would be right on the same page. The more we talk, right, the more it was like, oh, oh we're basically saying the same thing. Right. And conversations and relationships matter. And this this is the point that you that from our very first conversation in here, just get just being with people, having discussed this is why I found it very important to even to to be here tonight. I mean, obviously Dan's a good friend, but just to be here. One, I also just kind of have like this affinity and love for libertarians, my wife will tell you. Um I I've always said, you know, I I have I have an affinity for for libertarians, so it's a thing. Um but so 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 for instance, right? So even with we're we're one of the things we'll be working on soon is ending mandatory minimums in New Jersey. Right. And, right. And, you know, we had a discussion with the attorney general yesterday. And it was myself and the head of the NAACP and some other group. And we said, you know what? Because we just had a meeting with the Republicans a couple of weeks ago. And you know what the Republicans said? That? So we have this. He said, you know, we we'd be good with this and we're good. You find out just sitting down and talking with talking with people, you can break down a lot of barriers. To your point, a lot of things that media and everything, the the, the tribalism is real. And right and, and 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 I may say some things that if you don't know me, you'll take a different way and I you, et cetera, et cetera. But once we've had a conversation, it's like we get it. Even if even if we don't line up or fully agree, but no, but I get it. I understand what's being said. And so so even on this piece, so we're sitting there and said, and the Republicans said, you know, can you guys ever consider just coming to us first? Like we'd be more than willing to help push some of what you're actually talking about. Like it's not. And and they had a good point. And so yesterday with the AG, we said we should probably go to the Republicans on this. And we really and we think that they're going to be down with it because it makes sense. And the AG even said, you know what, that that's really going to make sense because he wants to be down with it. And here's a place where all where if we know this, this will likely be a great bipartisan, multipartisan moment because it just makes sense. Right. This mandatory minimums which have been oppressing and so many folks caught up still in prison today because judges were not able to even have discretion and see people as individuals rather than just these kind of blanket situations. I think the number one thing is to stop thinking about how do we punish this 
but instead say, why did it happen and how do we stop it? I think that's the issue, right? There was a, a, a terrible story that happened recently in, in upstate New York and Rochester. A young, a young mom brings her child to work in a, in a restaurant. The child died, fell, fell inside a grease trap and died. Three-year-old boy. Horrible. Two sides. Side one says, what a terrible mom. What's wrong with her? How evil is she? And I said to myself, this woman now has to go home and tell her family that she's responsible for the death of her child. She will take that with her to her grave, right? She wishes she was in that vat. She wishes it was not her child, but it was her. And our answer is punish her and put her in jail. Again, how cruel are we? There's nothing we can do to make that woman's life worse, right? The other side was, we need more laws. We got to have more great laws, right? More great laws. It's great, great, great laws. What did they do? They sent out a bunch of uh, people, uh, inspectors, inspected all the uh, all the. Um, Restaurants and started issuing, you know, tickets and fines. And all of a sudden, they used this child's death and this mother's grief as a money grab. That's what actually happened. Luckily, she had no charges. But no one did the most important thing, which is, why did she bring her child to work? And the reason is because she didn't have any child care. That's the reason why. Now, you would think in normal, in normal situations, what would you do with child care? Well, if you have to go to work and you don't have a, a babysitter, you give it to the grandma, uncle, aunt, whatever, any of those things, right? Used to. No, because in New York State, so oppressive, all the family leaves. I know because my mom died in South Carolina because she had to pack up and leave. She couldn't retire in New York State. It was too expensive for her. So oppressive. So the laws were so oppressive and the taxes were so oppressive. We, we leave now. New York State, 150,000 people leave every year. That's how bad it is in New York State. 150,000 every year leave New York State. That's how terrible it is, right? So families leave. There's no family support structure. That's gone. Well, what else used to happen? To your other point, used to be you can drop your kid off to church. The local church used to always have some kind of daycare, but that got regulated out to where now there's no, there's no daycare that's just cheap anymore. Now it's all super expensive because regulations. If we start thinking about the why and how do we stop it, not how do we punish, we'll change how we write our laws. So I, I just want to let everyone know that this has all been recorded and will be will be available in a, in podcast form. And uh, the podcast is called Lions of Liberty, and it'll be on Friday on the show Felony Friday. So this will probably all be one episode, so it'll be a, a marathon episode. So great one to share with with people from you know all uh, all spectrums, left right. You know the cr- criminal justice reform is the like I said earlier, it's the one issue that I think really unites us all right now. So pass it off to Michael. So we could probably sit here and everybody could ask a question all night, but it is nine o'clock. And I did tell everyone we would be wrapping up at nine o'clock, but real quick, I just wanted to touch on that. The decentralization aspect of it, it starts with going to your local board of education meeting. It starts with going to your local town hall meeting. It starts with you just telling your friend, hey, dude, I'm going to go over to the board of ed meeting because I heard they're doing this thing with, you know, with school lunches. And I, I think it's kind of important. We should probably check it out. It, it, it starts with having a conversation with your neighbor about what's going on in town. It starts with getting outside of your bubble. We all get so busy in life and things happen and people pass away and we start to reflect on things. So, But you got to remember, getting outside of your bubble is the most important part. So if we can all just make that conscious effort when we leave here today to get outside of our bubble, have some empathy for the person who had something happen to them, whether it be a drug charge or a gun charge or it be their child fell in an oil vat when they were at work and find out why these things are happening. Is what I started off tonight with is why do these things happen and why are people in these positions? 
if you could just find it within yourself to have one conversation with one person this week by why what we spoke about tonight, you are making a difference because then that person's going to go and they're going to have a conversation with somebody. How do we affect that change? You can't eat an elephant in one bite, man. One bite at a time, one conversation at a time. It doesn't matter who it is. I promise you, you're going to find common ground with them. I went to a real quick story and when I'm done, just to tell you how easy it is to find common ground with somebody. I'm running for Congress, New Jersey, blue, blue, blue state, right? Chris Smith's the only Republican left, right? He's the only one. He's been there 31 years. I'm with Murray while he was running for Senate and we're in Allentown, right? Murray ran a great campaign. We're in Allentown, and I see the Josh Welly tent. Now, Josh Welly was the Democrat that was running for Congress, right? The same guy that said that he believes in states' rights and the Tenth Amendment. I walk into his tent, and it, there was probably 15 to 20 volunteers in his tent. He had everybody out in force, and I had a conversation about gun control because I didn't care because I wanted them to see my perspective. And you know what? I probably had one of the most amazing conversations I have ever had about gun control with a group of 15 Democrats in 2018 during what everyone was considering the blue wave. Okay? I explained to them some of my points. They explained to me some of their points. And we all walked away and we all knew each other a little bit better. And our community got a little bit stronger. So don't be afraid to have a conversation as long as you're willing to have the proper de-escalation training <laughs> and you're not yelling at people and calling them names and telling them how dumb they are because they believe in leftist propaganda or they believe in right-wing propaganda. Don't do that. Let's have a real conversation. Be respectful. Love your neighbor just like you would love God. And go forth and tell everyone about tonight. Share the videos, share everything, and hopefully we make a dent. Because if we change one mind, every penny spent tonight and every minute spent tonight was worth it. Thank you very much. Oh, there you go. Maj, why don't you tell everybody how we can get a hold of you? Flyers. Um, if y'all want one, they're here. Majforphilly.com. I mean, I'm not gonna tell y'all not to donate. You, I mean, you can. Um, yeah, you should donate. Yeah. Thank y'all so much, and I appreciate everybody for coming out tonight. Um, you can you can uh, Google Salvation and Social Justice or S A N D S J dot org. Um, you can also catch me at BethelWilburyAME.org. And I'm also going to tell you not to not donate. <laughs> Larry? Uh, lastly, if you guys want to see me on a podcast every uh, Monday night, 8 to 10, I do a live video podcast with live phone calls um, out of New York City. Go to The Sharp Way uh, Facebook page or thesharpway.com, uh, Sharpway uh, of uh, Instagram, Twitter. The Sharpway is the answer. And you can also donate to me too if you want to. Keep me going with Patreon. Thank you, guys. I think I, I, think I already said uh, Lions of Liberty. That's the, that's the podcast. Felony Friday is getting its own feed, which is exciting. It's going to be easier to share with you know, people on all sides of the uh, political spectrum. So that's coming up. So uh, check us out. We're on every single platform where you, where you get podcasts. And then real, go ahead. I'm sorry. And real quick, um, I'm the only local one here outside of Reverend, right? So he's going to be able to do a lot more work than I can. However, if you are interested in getting involved, more of the grassroots effort type of things, we have some sign-up information in the back for Young Americans for Liberty, where you can sign up. 
get information from them, get emails from them, find out what's going on. I have a table in the back for the New Jersey Libertarian Party. If you're interested in what we're doing as a party here in New Jersey, please feel free to sign up, maybe even register as a member. Um, we also have the Mises Caucus here from the National Libertarian Party. They have a bunch of information. This is right up their alleyway. It's exactly why they're here. Um, please reach out to them. And just so everyone knows... Okay. Yeah. And then if you don't want to sign up on one of those for whatever reason it may be, you can always reach out to me on Facebook at Michael Rufo Libertarian. I urge everybody to go like my page so I can have a broader group. And last but not least, Murray, who I mentioned a little earlier, does have a new book. Um, it is called Why the Fed Sucks. Okay. And basically going to explain to you how the centralization of our money supply is, is a route to a lot of the problems we're all talking about here today as well. So um, I want again, thank everybody for coming out. Um, it, it's been a pleasure. You guys have been awesome. Thank you so very much. I don't have much to add, guys. I, uh, <laughs> that was an awesome forum. I loved every second of participating in it and getting to listen to these great leaders and uh, learn from and, and speak with these great leaders in the criminal justice reform movement. Thanks to uh, Mike Rufo for putting this together. Thanks to Larry Sharp for coming down from New York. Maj Ture coming over, uh, taking some time out during this very busy campaign season. But uh, Maj is a, a man of the people, and uh, he's always willing to, uh, to give back and to, uh, to speak at, uh, at events like this. So big thanks to Maj and of course, Charles Boyer, the Reverend Charles Boyer. I do want to bring Charles on the show. I spoke with him about it, do a solo show and really dig into uh, really his philosophy more and get details on a lot of the the legislation that he has passed. This is a guy that has been, he's uh, played an intricate this is a guy that's played a very important role in passing some powerful legislation in the state of New Jersey around bail, around bail reform and around the use of solitary confinement. So just one more thing, guys, and you know what it is. If, uh, if you love this stuff, if you love this show, if you love Mark's show on Monday, Brian's show on Wednesday, please consider joining our Patreon, our Lions of Liberty Pride group. You can find that by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. If you don't want to join that and you drink coffee, think about buying some coffee through our link, lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You can pick up the Morning Roar. It is our uh, delicious breakfast blend. Fantastic coffee. I drink it every single morning. I love it. I buy the uh, the whole bean coffee, grind it freshly every morning, mix it up in a, uh, a French press, and it is, uh, it's an outstanding way to start your day. So lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Check that out. Also, another way to support us is through the Lions of Liberty store. We have our brand new Taxation is Death mug. That's right. Taxation is theft, but the theft leads to and funds death through wars, Foreign wars, domestic wars like the war on drugs, and other government policies. Taxation is death. You can find that at lionsofliberty.store. That's it. Thank you all so much for listening. Appreciate you. I really hope you enjoyed this event. And there is some video on it, too. If I can track that down, I will post it on the show notes page at uh, lionsofliberty.com slash FF195. Everyone have a great weekend, a safe weekend. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off.
always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.